0: Between the time when the oceans drank Atlantis and the rise of the sons of Arius, there was an age undreamed of. And on to this Conan, destined to bear the jeweled crown of Aquilonia upon a troubled brow. Verging is at last at hand. day of doom is here.
1: Come, from the north, a man of great strength. A man who would someday be king by his own hand. One who would crush the snakes of the
0: earth. Snakes? Did you say snakes? What is it you seek? A standard. A symbol. Perhaps on a shield. Two snakes coming together. I've chafed for years at this demi-god. Snakes, my beautiful city. To the west, the media at Wallone. To the south, Karp, Stigia. Snakes, everywhere these evil towers. You alone have stood up to their god. You killed my mother. You killed my father. You killed my
1: people. You took my father's sword. What is steel compared to the hand that wields it? Look at the strength of your body, the desire in your heart. I gave you this. Crumb, grant me one request.
0: Grant me revenge. And if you do not listen,
1: then the hell with you.
2: Welcome back to the Film 89 podcast. This is episode 80. I'm Sky, and joining me tonight are two former guest hosts who haven't been on Film 89 for far too long. The first is a podcasting supremo hailing all the way from Pennsylvania. It's Comics Connections expert on everything, funnily enough, comic book related, Mr. John Armenio. John, welcome back to Film 89.
3: Hail, Crom! Great to be back. This is one of my favorite movies. I'm very excited.
2: And also joining us is one of the greatest film poster artists working in the business today. And like John, he's no stranger to movie podcasts. It's the legendary Mr. Tony
4: Stella. Tony, welcome back, sir. Hello, guys. Thank you. I mean, I feel this is really a momentous event. I've been waiting for this one for a long time. I think a little shout out before we start to our podcast brethren. And I feel we all are wrong, real alumni and This was, I think, the gateway for so many of us into Wrong Real and James Hancock, the world, because Bill Tech has made this made this Conan podcast that got many of us started onto the Wrong Real episode. And John, you just recorded with Bill over at the Pink Smoke. So I feel this is a very dense little circle that we run in and we haven't had a chance to all meet yet. But so this is my first podcast with John. I'm really happy. I've enjoyed all the Bond podcasts you've done over at the Pink Smoke and obviously Sky Old Friends here by now and and this is great because you know so many of these topics get burned out or we're not ready and this is really uh the perfect invitation i've been waiting for this one
2: well i'm glad you brought yeah. it up tony because i think that the first wrong real podcast i ever listened to was the conan the barbarian one so, yeah me too yeah wow that's amazing yeah that was my kind of gateway drug into into movie podcast and then obviously from there and via james and everyone else all coming together and you know encouraging us this is where we are
4: yeah, so big shout out to the pod fathers, Bill Tech and James Hancock, because that was really, like, it's a certain type of guy that looks for Conan content <laughs> in, in 2022. We are, we are fewer than ever. But, you know, and then when we meet, it's like a kind of nod along the pathway of the samurai. You know, we all know where we're coming from and we we all hold this movie in such high regard is that. I love it too when I get a chance to be on a on an episode where I have nothing but positive things to say. You know, and this gets rare and rare as our last one we took apart Tarantino, you know, and all my problems with him over the years and now it's just this absolute love fest. I feel that this uh, this this momentous Conan um, 82 version.
3: And and I think it's perfect because the only person other than William Smith I would cast as Conan's father is Bill Tech. Yes, perfect. (laughs) Giving us the riddle of steel.
2: So on tonight's episode, obviously, uh, by now, we're celebrating yet another 40th anniversary. Last episode, it was Blade Runner, and tonight, it's another classic from 1982. John Meal is his big-screen adaptation of the character made famous in the books of Robert E. Howard. Conan the Barbarian starring none other than Arnold Schwarzenegger. Now, Arnie, apart from, I think, that Predator episode that Neil and I did with Martin Kessler way back when The Predator came out, I actually think that given the fact that he is one, certainly one of the Film 89 team's favorite actors, uh, certainly during our childhood and growing up, he's kind of been underserved on Film 89 so far. We've definitely done far less coverage of uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger films than um, our sort of taste in film would uh, suggest.
3: He's absolutely one of my favorite actors. Like, I, I know he's not a great actor, but I can't think of another performer who gives me the sheer joy of just watching him. Like if I had to list my top three favorite actors, it'd be like Humphrey Bogart to Shir Mifune and Arnold Schwarzenegger. His movies just bring me incalculable joy.
4: Yeah, he's sort of the 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 pathway that divides a movie star and a great actor, right? And Mm -hmm. Arnold is like, is the movie star. And this is the role that sort of gave birth not only to Robert E. Howard's character, The Barbarian, but it was almost built. He was built for the movie and the movie was built for him. And this sort of fortunate, you know, as we all know, these fraudulent production and what a real crazy, uh feat it is to put a movie together in such a big team where the from the production design to the, the scripts and what a crazy journey that is to for it all to come together like in like you said and in Blade Runner, it's crazy to think that we got 82. We got both of these coming out back to back. It's this, and these worlds still hold up so airtight and so perfect that I feel we can never get back to that. These are all in-camera effects still, and and for this to all come together and then have Arnold emerge as he's that's his like sixth or fifth movie, not counting like the little TV appearances. It's it's momentous, you know, and it, it it there's really wouldn't have been any other vehicle that, that would have made this possible.
2: Yeah, I think if you if you're counting the major Arnold Schwarzenegger films that are worthy of mentioning when you're talking about his filmography, I don't know if before Conan the Barbarian there's anything of any great substance that's worth mentioning other than Pump and Iron.
3: I do really like Stay Hunger. I think Stay Hunger is a good one, but he's definitely he's definitely not Arnold yet in that movie. Right. A yeah, yeah, little
4: great cameos in The Long Goodbye, legendary, you know, and yeah, obviously, yeah, yeah. like, Hercules from New York, one of the best funny, horrible movies of all yeah. time, and, uh, you know, uh, but, you know, the jump that he really takes from these kind of embarrassing TV cameos, and, you know, where he's kind of playing Italian masseurs, and, like, we, uh, just horrible fits, and then to all of a sudden... You know, he was told over and over again that his body and his accents are detrimental for him to even be in the movies. And then, you know, the, the legendary story where it's like Dino rejected him and said, you know, I, I don't want Arnold. And he suggested, OK, then we go with Dustin Hoffman. And he's like, and Dino's like, no, OK. And then the other story where he goes, well, if we don't have Arnold, we have to build him you know, there's nobody that embodies this, because I think it's more than just, and we see this, we're going to get into this in the failing legacy of of these beautiful Conan tales that could have been, he's not just a bodybuilder, Amelius does a, a great job, he really casts the characters, and Arnold has this perfect duality of being also a brute, naive, barbarian that's completely, you know, breaks your back, but also is a lovable figure, and that's, and none of these other surfer boys or bodybuilders can embody that. You know, he really is unique in that sense of um, this Austrian mountain man and how charming he is and how how eloquent we see in Pumping Iron. You know.
2: Well, yeah. You know, it, it, if you go back into how this film came about, it was executive producer Edward R. Pressman. He invited associate producer Edward Summer to see an early cut of Pumping Iron because he was wondering, having seen that documentary, what movie vehicle would suit arnold schwarzenegger summer immediately thought of conan and then pressman and schwarzenegger took about five years trying to secure the rights to robert e howard's character ed summer and roy thomas who was one of the writers over at marvel comics they wrote the first script but then it was Oliver stone's script that really got the project going and stone kind of saw his script as being the first of 12 stories as he says which would become conan films now stone was initially to co-direct with joe alves who was the production designer on Jaws. He would later then go on to direct Jaws 3. They considered Alan Parker and Ridley Scott, but they all turned the project down. And it was Dino De Laurentiis, who was also trying to secure the rights to Conan. So Pressman went to Dino to sell him Stone's script. Dino took the script to Ned Tannen at Universal, and John Melius was chosen to direct. Now, Melius had no experience with the Conan box other than Frank Frazetta's drawings. I'll fess up, guys you've never read any of Robert E. Howard's Conan books, have you, either of you?
4: Yeah, yes. I have, but I want to hear from from John because not only does he have read the books, but I know he's. I've I've read Red Nails, and and not the book, the the comic book, but I want to hear the John's opinion on the the comic book side because Marvel, the that side was really closed off to me. The Barry Windsor Smith and Mm -hmm. Buscema and whoever came after, I have saw them, but they were not really connected for me because I was already spoiled by the movie. So it'd be interesting. Yeah. John, how did you uh, first encounter this?
3: My first encounter with reading Conan was the the stories. I mean, this movie has been with me since I was like eight or nine years old. So that's been the image of Conan in my head since then. Um, But I've read like almost all the short stories by robert e howard i haven't read any of the conan novels but almost all the short stories and my experience with the comics has been sort of piecemeal throughout the years so i've read a little bit of the barry and windsor smith stuff Mm. i've read a lot of the dark horse stuff that came later and then i've read everything from the last five or six years that uh, marvel has done and like any comic book property that's been around that long there's some highs and then there's some lows but the recent stuff by Jason Aaron has been really fantastic, very strange and very violent. But I think what the comics do bring over from the Robert E Howard stories and why I love the character of Conan, is that he's not just a brute. You know, like, like Tony was saying, he's a man of deep thoughts and great sorrow and and great mirth. And he's yes. just as, he's just as liable to laugh with you as cut your head off. And I think that, and, you know, he becomes, a great king near the end of his life. So he has the capacity to come from the humblest of beginnings and rise to be the greatest of men. And I find that fascinating.
4: Yeah, I for me, it was... I, 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 like like you, John. I, I, this movie has been sort of in my DNA. It's, it's always been there. I really don't know how I encountered it, but I think it's my aunt. She, she used to record all these uh, films for me: Alien and all kinds of craziness that would just be back of VHS tapes from from the t- from uh, TV. And then I, I, Conan was just like I was always into Hal Foster and Prince Valiant and the whole the medieval world, as you know, Sky growing up in Europe, the castles, the, these things are around us. The the Greek tales, Achilles. This this is all mothers milk for me. And when I, I've i been kind of spoiled by that image, like I've been spoiled by the James Bond image of Sean Connery and this amalgamation that isn't really Fleming, the same was true for Milius and Arnold for me. I was kind of used to, this is Conan for me, this kind of a little bit more toned down, history-grounded Conan. And, and when I if saw him in any other form, I was kind of skeptic. I was like, I don't know. I didn't like the Barry Windsor Smith drawings. The helmet looked weird and the eyes look... It wasn't Conan for me. But when I finally read... And then I stumbled upon maybe the worst start to the Robert E. Howard. I read Conan the Usurper because I had the coolest cover. I had the Frazetta with the big snake. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, this is set. This is something I, I recall from the movies, This this cover. But that's the one story where Conan isn't really in it. It's sort of just in his world. And then when I did some digging later on. And I read some of the short stories. I was surprised how amazing, like I think the the Phoenix and the sword, the Phoenix on the sword. If you read that, it's very short. You have to read this because everything is in there. Conan is already king. And it's basically just a little assassination story but the description of the battle is so cinematic and so like everything you want there's really nothing missing in the translation to the movie the violence the absolute detail the barbarianness and i think this is what really made the core fascination of conan to me is in that original text that is this great role reversal where it's the barbarian versus the civilization, it's that turnaround that usually we follow the straight narrative from the barbarian hordes are invading and the great civilization There's some kind of progress and Tolkien and the elves or the higher beings and we follow them where uh, Howard reverses that. He finds, we follow the beast and he never forgets that. Even as a high king, he c- returns to the barbarian and we follow his story. And that's sort of the great anti-hero that maybe has the roots in Tarzan or stuff. But even Tarzan then, you know, finds his way to civilization where Conan never does. Even, uh, like you said, uh, uh, John, uh, he has, he has he's exposed to these great m- melancholies and these rest, but he never forgets his roots. And that's really the joy of Conan and that this, we get this absolute primordial hero that's really in no other story.
2: Yeah, no, one of the things that struck me about Conan the Barbarian when I was younger. Now, Tony, we grew up in a time when, in the 80s, the kind of fantasy sword and sorcery sort of film like this, it was a really kind of popular subgenre in and of itself. But of all, you know, the films like Beastmaster and uh, yeah. The Sword and the Sorceress and films like that. Conan the Barbarian was, and I I think this was something that was very much intentional on Milas' part, he wanted to bring the Conan stories back to some kind of real historical beginning. Production designer Ron Cobb, who'd worked on Alien, he kind of purposely designed the look of Conan's world in the film with the intention of making everything look like it would work in a historical context as opposed to a fantasy one and and that's something that really did strike me at the time having you know i was expecting almost kind of like you know like like the sinbad films where you've got monsters and, and magic and and wizards and witchcraft and, and stuff like that that's what I was almost expecting here, but you get a very kind of bare minimum of that, and I think that's something about this film. I think this sets it apart from other sword and sorcery films. In fact, I I, I would almost put it away from that kind of subgenre. Yeah,
4: I mean, it's. It, I always like to say it defined the genre and it broke the mold, like the big sword in the beginning. It, there's no nothing else and can never be repeated. It that's it. They had one chance with Destroyer. We'll get into that a little bit later. I think. But they had one chance of these men in that time coming together because we see it, re- it reflected in Milius' kind of birth as a filmmaker that also all these paths merge. And th- there was this time when you could mold the sword and hammer it into a weapon. And, and, and now it's gone. It's never to be retrieved. And that's why this film is so special and beyond any criticism for me because, of course, when you know we get the real film critics and they, they, they have a little bit of a... a snobby uh, eye towards it. I think we are the ones that defend this movie because we grew up and we really have the breadth of knowledge to compare it to any kind of filmmaking. It's not anymore so much we all acknowledge that it matters when you see these movies so if you see them early they're kind of etched into your d- DNA or in, your, in, in where the cement is dry and we, we kind of love them regardless of their faults but this one really over the years revisiting it there are no faults in it like everything is as great as it could be and with its limitations of the time and the production like you said Ron Cobb we, we have to get devote more time to him later but it really is this perfect kind of chemistry or it's magic. It's movie magic because, you know, it, it took Apocalypse Now and it took Milius to see that you have to adapt the heart of darkness from the book. And, you know, could not be literal. You had to make it into your own stuff. You had to create your own mythology. And same with Robert E. Howard, a faithful translation would have failed. It, it took Milius and his great ideas of myths and, 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 and bringing his literally his background and his 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 likings to to the to the material and then arnold and put all the mix in and 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 i think this this is what we have we have this really this big tome of a movie that's yeah, it's a genre unto itself. It, it, like you said, if you compare any, what's the next best one? You know, um, the Vikings, maybe Richard Fleischer, and that's how he comes in later. But there is—it's such a distance to the other ones in that genre that it's—it's it's a real marvel.
3: Yeah, there's there's so much depth to this movie that you know, rewatching it for the podcast, there's moments that hit for me harder than they have in my entire life and all my previous viewings, and we can get to those when we get to them. But yeah, you know, it it took. Somebody obsessed with the material like Oliver Stone creating this insane sounding script and filtered through a filmmaker like John Milius who had just enough juice to get it made. And afterwards, he sort of alienated himself from his critics in Hollywood because he took every professional criticism personally, unfortunately, and yet we couldn't get his dreamed-of trilogy.
4: Right, and I think, yeah, just a quick note on Dino here, because he does get a lot of, he has to carry a lot of the blame, but it's also due to him, you know, he comes from, uh, he's kind of a, a legend a movie legend that's not we have all the Fellini films to thank uh, him for even even Arnold later even though he does these horrific money grabs with Fleischer later he has nothing but good things to say still about him because he said once it all came together he really put all the force behind him and he had great enthusiasm and he let everybody do their thing and I think this is in this up and down career of Dino De Laurentiis Conan is also a shining gem in his in his crown because it it took him all these different genres, you know, really coming from, from neorealism and and comedies and Italian, um, later, you know, exploitation movies to this kind of, like he picked Milius. So he has a lot of credit and he finally said yes and devoted the money. So like, it's, it really is like in all the big successful films like even if you see like The Godfather how much couple had to fight for every inch in the end these things come together in a kind of in a kind of magic way that's beyond analysis mm-hmm. and here it's it's one of the best examples even though we can see the DNA in other movies Eisenstein and Kurosawa and we get into those it's not an easy feat especially in this genre that could easily easily drift to hokiness and go into like satin brothel dragon awful, the next best thing, barbarian genre that just spawned. You know, I mean, there were endless, endless. Uh, there's a whole Italian subgenre of barbarian flicks where everybody thought all you have to do is give a muscle guy a sword and have him run around in Spain. And we, I mean, yeah, your or <laughs> all the other
3: movies. Yeah. And I've so seen you, Lucio Fulci's Conquest. Exactly. None of yeah. <laughs> <at all. laughs>
2: exactly. Look, look, those films are bags of fun. And as a kid, I absolutely
4: just lapped them up. Yeah, I pride myself that I was even a snob at this age at six or seven when I saw this. I saw Destroyer and I was like, no, this is bullshit. I hate this right away. I was like, I could see the difference. I was like, who's this? I I could I didn't know who made these. I just knew I was fascinated with details of armor. You know, I'm, I'm a bit manic that way. Um uh, and and the way things look. I had that early and I could see I was something is off. And only later you realize and you analyze of course the, the, the story of, of why we never got the 12 films or even the Millius trilogy, which would have been, you know, a dream unrealized. But um therefore we have this one. And I'm I'm so grateful that this exists because it proves a lot of things for me. It proves that this not only the the poster, the the things the Frazetta paintings promise, can be realized and it's never been done again but even if we look at um you know all uh, so many dreams have come true lately with marvel or if you're a fan or not doesn't matter but these 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 our dreams for better or for worse as children in the 80s have become true we could visualize finally these things where we were called out as nerds or pushed off into a corner or something and now we finally see i mean we created sort of like hip-hop we created a monster That's a billions of dollar empire that has very little to do with the original impulse of being why we love these things and why we created these things. But, yeah, in terms of the fathers of Conan, I really would put there three fathers of Conan. It's in three different genres. We have Robert E. Howard as the original creator. Then we have Frank Fazetta, who you know, absolutely kept it alive and translated it into the paintings and then the the recollections that Lancer put out in the 70s or 60s. So that kept the myth alive. And then we have the translation again into another genre uh, film, and that is Milius. And so we've all these three guys to thank that this came together in this way. Yeah, and you, you
2: talked Tony, about the you know that that beginning, the, the way the film opens with a sword, because as much as this subgenre comes from quite base sort of a concoction of sword and sorcery, hack and slash, and you know if you strip it down to its bare essentials, it, it, it it's quite a you know a basic, straightforward kind of story that a lot of these films follow. But there is there's almost a pseudo intellectual
4: through line, there's thread
2: throughout this film.
4: The opening is directed by Ron Cobb, which is also yeah. great because he oversaw the making of the swords and he kind of sort of took over the the, the, the production design and the, the actual sword design. And he really got into it after, you know, Alien and designing that completely other world. And this is straight from Fritz Lang's The Nibelungen, or that's the myth, the Teutonic myth that, that, that Milius brings into it. He brings two of these proto-fascist big myths into it that co-opted the Japanese and the German. And this is very important that the making of the sword of Siegfried in the forge uh, uh, is the primordial German forest that we see reflected in the sunbeams shining through and the riddle of the steel in the beginning, like you said, William Smith. This is all Germanic level stuff, and that that, you know, this feeds again into Milius' character that he wouldn't be afraid of touching these very big topics that are especially in the 60s uh, counterculture that he comes from. He was a he was a provocateur. He, he played with those themes and kind of played a kind of a right-wing fascist guy. We all know he did it with a little twinkle in his eye. He wasn't really serious about that but he created that myth around him of the big Viking surfer and so he knows this material and we see it in those scenes that it's pure filmmaking. So many instances in this movie are done without these horrific monologues and that we just see we see things happen show me don't tell me right and it's pure filmmaking with a an anvil of Crom playing obviously in the background and we're right away in that world that's like I mean a fire lights inside you when you see this
2: obviously you see Ron Cobb he directed that opening sequence with the forging of the sword with the, the kind of etched inscription on the blade that either of you know what that inscription reads?
4: I, I, know. I, I know it, but I, I forgot to... Just, just imagine
2: that. how I'm reading this in my best William Smith voice. Right. Suffer no guilt, ye who wield this in the name of Crom. Exactly. Yeah.
3: I just wanted to say that I, you know, at the beginning, the very first images of the sword, we see it cutting through the titles as as the music plays and it's just such an incredible right. opening yeah. image. But I also love that it, that it's contrasted with William Smith's monologue to a young Conan. He's so gentle with right. his son, teaching him the riddle of steel and what's important in life and, you know, how to be a good man. And we're thankful that Conan got that lesson before his father's brutally murdered. Mm-hmm. So I love, even from the very beginning, we're given these contrasting forces in Conan's psyche of the fire and the steel and the warmth of family.
4: Yeah, right. Because it is Bushido. It's the path of the warriors. Trust. You can't trust in people. You have to follow the path of the sword, you know, to its bitter conclusion. And these these are, of course, you know, uh, for a young boy, that's all you want to hear. I mean, he is so on mm. board, I couldn't even tell you this is everything. And at this movie it really is a kind of symphony of uh, tour de Force highlights. I mean, there's no fat on the bone. Everything leads to another highlight. That It's so dense, you know. Even I've tried to create some kind of breaks here for the structure in my head, but it just leads on to the next epic scene. And this is my favorite scene. I think this is my favorite scene, you know. And then the contrast of the villain. We all know how important villains are. And, you know, the, the, the raid on the village, how it starts with the Pictish warrior. And I think this is something I really ran home to me as I for this podcast I finally saw the side-by-sides of Robert D. Howard and Milius as the two creators they are really in tune what with what frightens them personally Milius and because Milius puts these scenes in the the way the scout just cowers on the rock you know Franco Colombo Arnold's friend with the big tattoo I've seen
2: I've seen this film I don't even know how many times, I never realized until this rewatch, that that guy, the, the, the pit dish Scout, as he's called in the credits, that was actually Franco. Franco Columbo.
4: Yes, Franco. And 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 what's so amazing is the way that shot from underneath the way the young Conan is in the forest and he's sort of, and the frightening, the way the camera sets up, it just gives you, they know how to play with your fears. And Robert E. Howard obviously did too. That the, yeah, the, He has these perfect setups over and over again, where he imbues every little corridor with so much dread and that's the way he was writing. You know, we got the famous Milius quote about him with the Conan and the ax in the back and waiting for him every night. But I think you feel this, this really came home to me this time around that both these men are really aware of what frightens them and what terrifies them and they can bring it out in the film too. Yeah.
3: And that just makes me so fascinated by John Milius as a personality. As a, as a character and the character of John Milius he created, because, you know, I, I think if anybody loves this movie and hasn't seen the Milius documentary, I think you need to check that out. Like, from that, it, you get interviews with, like, his peers at USC with, like, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, and just to imagine, like, him palling around with George Lucas in college, like, these two such contrasting personalities and, and John Milius so creating this character where he's going to like film screens with a shotgun like let's make movies like he's a a madman
4: um, he's a madman, but he's also always. And George Lucas tells this great anecdote where he's screening mm-hmm. THX and the teacher kind of shuts it off because he's like, Oh, don't embarrass the other students. This is way too accomplished. You're going <laughs> to embarrass them. And Milius goes over to the teacher and slaps him. You know, he's like, Yeah. And, and he just like, and Lucas says, like, he, he, he was like this, like an older brother. And in that group, you can just see in that later would form, you know, these outcast UC legendary troop that would become Zoetrope. And so. He, you can see that in among these film dweebs that he would have great joy in like being a real man amongst these nerds you know and but always with this great twinkle that he would say, I would I, I want to join the foreign legion but I was considering to fly first class or a coach to Marseille and I couldn't decide so I never joined or something you know so there's yeah. always he breaks with that and and if you and I think this comes across and and many critics at the time got stuck in the kind of bombast and the kind of fascist Men stuff, and they never saw through how much great, how, how much skill this takes, and how how, how yeah. honed it is.
2: So obviously, guys, this is this is first and foremost an Arnold Schwarzenegger vehicle, and it's hard not to focus on him and and his you know the fact that they chose him quite rightly to represent Conan on screen. But aside from him, it's got a pretty tremendous supporting cast. Now Milius, he had seen Sandal Bergman and Bob Fosse's all that jazz. And he knew that he had to have her as Valeria, and she is, for me, perfect casting. She has got—it looks as if she 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 was a Valkyrie born and bred. She's just got a physicality about her and, and something otherworldly. Like from the first time we see her, when uh, tight and Conan first meet her, she's just got this glint in her eye, and from that point onwards, I am just completely besotted by her. Jerry Lopez, who was—he was a world champion surfer. He was a friend of Melias, and Melias had looked for an actor who reminded him of Lopez. And when they couldn't find anyone else, anyone suitable, they just said, well, why not just get Jerry? You know, Jerry Lopez. he himself was a Robert E. Howard fan and had read most of his books. Arnold then recommended Sven Oli Thorson to, to play Thorgrim. Ben Davidson, he was an ex-NFL defensive end for the Oakland Raiders. He was cast to play Rexor. Both of them mountain of, uh, mountains of men. And I, I don't actually think, right, guys, Thorgrim, he doesn't have a, a, a line of dialogue in the film, am I right?
3: I I don't think so. I,
2: no, don't, I don't think Sven Oli Thorson says a word in the film.
3: I love that you know, this is a movie where and don't forget leads, Pseudo, yeah. sorry. Yeah, yeah, your three leads are a bodybuilder, a surfer, and a dancer.
4: Yeah. Right. and they have
3: to do scenes against Max von Sydow and James L Jones. Like it takes right. supreme confidence as a director and a handler of actors to be able to direct those. You know, non-actors to make the movie work, and I think it does beautifully. Yeah, who else could be Valerian Sandalberg? We we all yeah.
2: talk, yeah, we all talk about James Earl Jones, don't we, as, as being the voice of Darth Vader, you know, the the Sienna guy. If this this for me, this is up there. This is up there with one of the all-time great pieces of casting of anyone, and in particular a villain. Amelia really thought it would be great to make him. Look like some early race that had died out. That he was one of of the last of that race by giving him blue eyes and like this long straight dark hair. He's he's almost got like like a serpentine look to him in the film.
4: The he is he's again the absolute opposite of Conan. Mm-hmm. He, he is the refined civilized, the uh, the died-out race, the earlier race that has been refined to a point, he's the last of his people, he's he's almost bored, and, and the way he communicates that is amazing. So his character, Salsa Doom, is actually a, a Cull villain, called the Conqueror, which mm-hmm. is also Robert E. Howard creation, and the Salsa Doom character is more Thalsa Mon, because he's he's sort of the, the, the Seth uh, snake cult leader, and so he's the Amalgamation of those villains, and the way he acts in the movie is much more with that character. It's also doom in the in the in the Cull story. He has a skull face and is completely otherworldly and stuff. So James Earl Jones brings this all, of course, this fantastic way of acting and the the, the anecdote there goes that uh arnold was completely uh trusted amelius and he's like you know just tell me where to stand and tell me what to say and i'll 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 do that and and james old jones was like looking after that and he's saying oh my god this is amazing way to direct please could you also direct me like this because i just want to react to trusting the director and and having the right instincts and seeing creating that world and yeah he is the villains we all know are the most important thing. It's more important than the hero. Even if, if we don't believe them, it's all falling apart. And this structure again of the villains and the bodyguards and the hierarchy of villains, that comes from Japanese cinema. And that, that is also something with the oversized hammer and everything like this. This is Kurosawa DNA. This is Japanese folklore. That this is something that obviously Frazetta brings to it, but uh, this is enhanced in the Milius version even more. So we have these standards, and we don't have an army of the dead like uh, Oliver Stone wanted to have, and uh, tons of demons and and weird animals. It's a relatively small crew of like marauders and invaders, even in the final battle. But, but because they're all these oversized uh, great Danes, like you you said um, Ben Davidson and so, they bring their character into the movie and they they're, they're, they're un- like you said, um, uh, Jerry Lopez and so they're all who they are. So perfect casting in that way because the look is communicates so much more than any big speech could.
2: The opening. It's like a four-pronged attack of opening. You've got all these different styles. You've got the opening narration, which was originally going to be Conan narrating his own story, but that was then changed to being done by all the wizard, played by Miko. And then you've got, you know, obviously the credits with the, the forging of the sword. And then you've got William Smiths telling Conan about the Riddle of Steel. And then you've got that opening attack on, on the village, where we first see Thulsa Doom and his men. It's all done with minimal dialogue, and this is something that will kind of play throughout the film. But that, you know, that attack on the village and then you've got that scene where Doom reveals himself and and then you've got the bit where he's facing off against Conan's mother you know William Smith's character the way he gets killed by those dogs mauled to death and then you've got I think she was a German actress Nadiuska.
4: maybe yeah she looks Italian but yes something like that and that scene is directly from Alexander Nevsky, I talked with James about yeah. the similarities there, the, the way the Teutonic Knights take their helmets off slowly and reveal their face, and even the music reflects that, Basil Polidors, who's another, you know, all-star in this, the music changes to adapt each mood of this, and we get the somber, they're reaching back towards the helmet, there's a great ceremony, and Milius takes his time, and this is really the details that breathe life into this thing there's not even later we get all this time for a theological discussion about gods and stuff. when we don't get these clunky in any of the other uh comparisons in that genre we'd get clunky exposition about how they have to just steal the jewels and you know (laughs) and tell us how evil this guy is and what he's done we get none of this in here and we're so thankful because he lets these moments play out the way Conan's mother gets killed, the way the looks communicated, the sorrow and the way he turns away from this great theatrical actor, turns away and then still cuts off her head. And Conan see the delay of seeing that fall is Kurosawa, cool, you know, the, the, the slow motion violence. And it's it's yeah, all this stuff is as we are little guys watching this it's all felt and we're thankful for it and now we can analyze it but it's still like uh, it's amazing that it's all in there
2: and so much of this story is told without dialogue how much of the actual film it you know do they 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 take time to tell us a story without clunky exposition extraneous dialogue so much of it is told with just stuff we're seeing on screen with visuals and score. You just look at how, you know, after the attack on a village and Conan's taken away, you then got that sort of. It's almost like a, you know, a time lapse montage using the Wheel of Pain as a mechanism by which to show Conan aging and growing bigger and stronger. And then from there, when he gets kind of you know how many years is he there you know just literally doing menial slave work and then he gets taken to the fighting pits when he's you know turned into this monster of a man and you've got that fighting pit montage where every scene they went to the trouble of putting him in a different costume with different weapons fighting you know fighting different people and it, it's all cut together so quickly but with so much kind of attention to detail to kind of show the amount of time that's passed and, and the warrior that he's become minimalist storytelling almost like a silent film approach but it, it just works just perfectly
3: there's one moment in the the opening uh, attack that i really loved i think more this time than i have uh, in any other pre- previous viewing when after conan's father is killed james will jones picks up his Conan's father's sword and just like caresses it with his fingertips, and that's all you need to know about Thulsa Doom. Like there's so much grim menace in that one gesture that he is violating Conan's whole world, and that's all you need to know about Thulsa Doom. And he turns away and leaves Conan to be sold into slavery. Like it's it's, it's everything.
4: Yeah, and later in the in the later in the Christ cycle, we see him barely remember that. and he's like, oh yeah, there was a time when I was looking for steel and it's it's like many of the reactions also like you said john the the way when he finds the atlantean sword conan in the cave the way he's in love with the sword and it's great acting this is great acting by Schwarzenegger this the way he's just loves the sword and it's his freedom and it's it's it gives him the power it's it's the revelation after all these years on the wheel of pain Uh, it's it's and as a pit fighter to find his own sword and carry on the legacy of his father and what what arnold does with his looks and and it really hit home this time you know i didn't let it wash over me like all the other times it all felt true always but this time when you pay attention in a different way for a podcast it just it's just mesmerizing the details
2: yeah and you talk about the truth and the way things sound. right when he falls into that cave and he finds like that warrior king or wherever he's supposed to be on the throne, and he, and he says Crom, as if that was the actual corpse of Crom. But obviously, you know, as Melius has said, that was some kind of Atlantean warlord. But it's like this: the delivery of that, and it's the sincerity in his in his performance. Just that's like one word of dialogue spoken in like several minutes of film.
4: Yeah, the production design. We we are we are feeling this ancient world pass us by. There is nothing we feel it in the details and the and the care that this time has passed and we just happened upon this moment, this giant you know, the time of giants that has been, it's been over. And this is something, you know, that I always criticize and what we've had as kids in Star Wars, when we just heard of the Clone Wars and we never had to have it played out to us. This is, they know this in this film and it happens over, over. how do you, how do you communicate the grandeur of the landscape and that this this is one adventure among, that we just happen upon. And, you know, when we meet King Osric or when we see the, the, these worlds are endless. And, and, and this is something that takes great, great skill so few movies can do it, and so few movies and filmmakers can resist this over explanation and this over exposure, and it shrinks the world and it makes it really sad and small. And, and really, uh, only the best movies can do it. Yeah. And of course, we got the big uh, <laughs> Mongol leader. What's best in life?
0: How? We won again. This is good, but what is best in life? The open step, fleet horse, falcons at your wrist, the wind in your hair. Wrong! Conan, what is best in life?
2: To crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and to hear the lamentation of their women. That is good. That is good.
4: And this is something I taught my daughter very early. This is the first monologue I taught her. I
3: always want to say, what's best in life?
4: To crash your enemies and see them driven. <laughs>
3: <laughs> see, I, I, I think, like, for, for me, this, that moment is the philosophical center post of this film. And for a lot of reasons, because it's Conan parroting the values of his owner. Like, right. those are the words of a slave. And it's not until he's freed. And, you know, when he is freed, he's so bereft of direction. he He's sort of, like, reverting back to the cow not coward the the scared child he was when he was first thrust into the pit like he has no idea what is happening to him now that he's free yeah and it's only later when he finds Valeria when he he finds Jerry Lopez and Mako that he discovers that like the people that he loves and being free and being able to make your own decisions like that is what is best in life and so I just adore the journey of Conan going from this instrument of profit to somebody who can set an entire civilization free from the, the thrall of a cult. Like, I think that's a beautiful story
4: and it's a great arc that like you said that really came home this time around I didn't notice the, the many details Arnold's performance has after he's come back from the death he's changed then he he, as battle approaches he he's changed again as Valeria dies he's changed and he, we see him become a king I mean this movie does all the heavy lifting for, for the other sequels that could have happened because this movie does it all he really creates this arc and it's there in Arnold's performance it's there when he's gregarious and, uh, you know, whoring around and punching the camel and then to to, to change all these different modes he goes into. And they, sometimes they're so subtle, you know, that, that he, he doesn't laugh anymore for a while in the movie. And then, you know, he finds that again. And and this is this is really a fantastic arc within the big arc. And like you said, and, and of course you can always, with Milius, there's this duality of this great pathos, but then always the entertainment value because what's best yes. in life? And then he says... As the one leader goes, you're on an open step, a fleet horse, a falcon at your wrist and the wind in your hair. Wrong, Conan. You know, and it's just like to crush your enemies, see them driven before you and hear the lamentation of their women. And as a child, you're like, yes, you just you couldn't say anything better at th- that point. But you're yes. right, John. There is a second dimension to this that only comes true in the end in the candle dance that we have at the end when he sets free himself and the cult. Followers, the the people.
2: I'll not tell you that I, I don't agree though, because I'd love to go back to the days before I crushed all my enemies, because all I'm left with now <laughs> is this podcast, and I I just long for those days. <laughs>
4: yeah, Conan does too. When he has that beautiful thing before the final battle, he, he remembers the days in the forest with yeah. his father, and he laughs to himself. And he now he's back in battle. This is what he knows. You know, he, he can't deal with the loss. But this is Robert E. Howard too. Every time, that's why Robert E. Howard. He really, it's all in there. He 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 he. he when they see him. Uh, when they, when they um, kind of want to dethrone him and he, he, he finally he's out of the throne room and the politics, he's back in battle, you know, and that's where he, his spirits come alive. It really is Conan and it's not lesser in the source material.
2: And, and going back to that bit where he finds that Atlantean sword. Now, in the last episode, the, the, the Blade Runner episode, we, we talked about how the score and the sound effects in that film so perfectly melded together. And there's a good example of that in this film. When he, he takes a sword and there's that great little audio play where, as he gets outside and he uses his sword to cut off his anklet, you've got that clinking sound, which is just timed perfectly to slot in like a chime into the score that's playing. And then you've got, he, he sees the wolves, he kind of holds the sword and he gives them that look. And then in the next shot, he's wearing their palts. And, and like again, <laughs> it's a simple story time with visuals. You don't need to see him like killing and then skinning these
4: wolves. Right. And then he, he meets the witch. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that was oh, an early impressionable, oh, my God, I, yeah. I love that. Ooh, yeah, no. that scene was everything.
2: And she, and she says, she you know, she, she predicts, doesn't she? She says, they said you would come from the north, a man of great strength, a conqueror, a man who would someday be king by his own hand, one who would crush the snakes of the earth. And there's this beautiful description about her in the script that is said that, about the witch that she moved slightly ahead of her shadow.
4: Yeah. And this is straight from Japanese folklore. There's a film called uh, Snake Girl with the Silver-Haired Witch from 1968 by Noriyaki Uza. It's the same transformation. It's the exact same transformation. So Milius knows this because it's it. I, I will put a side by side on Twitter. She, she, uh, she turns into the snake woman. And there's these little subtle... When the fantasy elements come in, they are so perfectly dosed, yeah like the snake arrow of of Doom. these are things that I want to see. I don't want a pure realistic um, whatever barbarian plundering around. I want I want these fantastical elements, but they are rooted and grounded and when we when we when we encounter them we believe them. And this is also where Arnold is super charming as this kind of a naive barbarian because this is also the first time he encounters this and we see it in his performance again.
2: Well, she, she obviously then gives him what he or gives her what she, what she wants. She goes batshit crazy. Conan <laughs> throws her into the fire, and then the next morning he leaves and he finds Subutai chained outside and frees him. And then they have that conversation uh, about their gods, and Conan almost seems to concede that Subutai's god is mightier.
3: There's just this beautiful moment in that exchange where you know Conan. You know, tells about Krom of the mountain, and then you know, Subatai says, You know, my god is the four winds. Your Krom is underneath him. And there's this just beautiful comic moment where Arnold just looks at Sabutai like I have I have no comeback for that. Yeah, you, you have to do <laughs> <It's laughs> so that.
4: Yeah, great. exactly. And that perfectly expresses his charm that he has. He's not just a brute blunt force. He's like, oh whatever, you win this. Later when he challenges Crom and like if you don't listen to me uh, to hell with you you know th- this is the relationship to th- his to his god it's the old testament god like he barters with him you know it's, this is not like you know uh, he is the true barbarian even there's nobody above him above his god because he can just put this god down if he doesn't listen to him it all goes out the window and if somebody else comes along who is uh, who is smart, who has a different approach, he takes it to with a smile. You know, it, it's fantastic. And any lesser film would have never given this space. They would have talked about, oh, you know, I heard about the city and Salsa doom. And we got to steal the uh, snake eyes because they've been killing. Me. They would, it would have been all in that campfire scene and it would have been awful. And it would have would, now we see. And another thing that hit me as a kid and this time around, it made sense. The fact that they're running like Zulu warriors—they're not plundering about like in the step, like these two barbarians, like any other of these, you know, uh, uh, fur-clad movies does, where they're just like uh, 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 they're running, and that's the that's that's just a fantastic detail.
3: And I know. I, I know you know Ron Cobb was the, the production designer and was the instrument was instrumental in so many the so much of the imagery in the film, but like just props to the location scout for this right. thing cuz it just looks so amazing you can imagine that these vast you know steps go on for leagues and leagues or that weird rocky culvert of the the witch woman oh of course a shape changing witch yeah, this is all at the end of that culvert. Like, exactly, it's just amazing.
4: This is all Spain: Almeria, Tabernas, El Condor. The first civilization they encounter is the famous fortress El Condor, with uh, Jim Brown and Lee Van Cleef made famous. It's very, it's the heart of uh, Italian Western locations.
2: Yeah, and, and thank, thankfully, um, it was producer yeah. Raffaella de Laurenti. She'd made the decision to move the shoot from the then troubled y- Yugoslavia to Spain, and that caused postponing of the shoot by six months. But I definitely think it was to the film's benefit
4: very much. And two of my favorite films been shot there uh, 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 alongside of course all the Italian western locations that we realize. Mecenario plays there. We we see, we recognize especially that big fortress that unfortunately doesn't exist anymore. But uh, it, it's it's that setting that creates also uh, Robin and Mary and Richard Lester. They shot in Spain and it has that, it has those gnarled trees and, and it, it creates really this other world. But it also has just amazing craftsmen waiting at any turn. I mean the Italians had been using this since the late 60s uh, mid 60s early 60s since Lawrence of Arabia really so there's all these skilled people that are there and we see it later in the construction of Ron Cobb's um, temple set and so for how much is the budget of this movie? It's like something like twenty million, right? I mean it's unheard of what they managed to do.
2: Now you look at some of those scenes where we see them going from city to city, right? You've got one where they this is wide shot of this like vast city and as they approach it, I I was just floored because this in the is El Condor.
4: This is El Condor, the fortress.
2: Yeah, but but a lot of these like wide establishing shots are, are kind of enhanced by the of of foreground miniatures of the way it's all composited together is completely flawless. Because Absolutely. a Absolutely, you know, seamless. Yeah. We, we see that recurring structure of that snake-like tower, don't we? It, it was built for real, you know, in in the one set. But when they they're compositing it into these other sort of cities, it it, it was you know it was a, it was an effect. And you know when we get to one of those cities, Melius himself he played a small role as um I think it was like a market seller when he's selling this kind of like fast food thing lizard on a stick but then he ended up cutting himself out of the film and then they move on to another city looking for clues as to you know the the, the whereabouts of this snake cult and then production designer Ron Cobb he gives them a bit of valuable information it was you know it, it was Cobb himself who designed all of this kind of snake cult Architecture, all the snake-related symbolism, in a similar way to how the production design on *Lord of the Rings* was done, down to a meticulous degree. In in a film which had a fraction of the budget, you still see that kind of same attention to detail. And it's, yeah. it's about it's about that thing that um, that George Lucas was trying to mimic with Kurosawa, that sort of artificial reality where you make everything on the smallest level look realistic, and it will sell in a far more convincing way. The fact that the artificial kind of fantasy or science fictional Either way, fictional world you're creating is in some way real.
3: And I love that, you know, these are two guys who come from almost being killed by, you know, a shape-shifting witch. You know, Conan comes from slavery, from his, his family being slaughtered, and they come into a city for the first time, and it's civilization, ancient and wicked. And Conan's first reaction is, does it always smell like this? Like, they, it's really anathema to everything they value. And for you know, us civilized people, it would be a refuge in this world. And it's it's such an efficient way of characterizing our our leads.
4: Yeah, and it's great that the villain, the 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 de- the doom the dark force in this movie is a sickness a cult that spreads it's 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 everywhere already right yeah. so this is a great choice for a smaller movie because you have a, this ominous thing that precedes them and it's there and it waits for them at every turn it's 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 the the charlatans and the healers and the disease that's fraught in the civilization that comes to us and we see how Conan reacts to it like a barbarian and these great things come one of the best thing I loved as a kid the obviously the camel punch which is straight. From Blazing Saddles, you know, the mongo character. Like, how does this barbarian now interact? He's like slots, you know. They <laughs> all <laughs> slots. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Perfect. Oh, there's the camel approach you punch out the camel. Like you know, it, it's so this as a kid, it's it again, there are these moments in there where it's not just a brooding. Um, warrior on the way to be a king. It's 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 this these details with Valeria later you know, when they get rich and uh, it's just a short amount of time that is packed so dense. Like you said, Sky, with it's like a Bruegel painting. Every production piece is every corner of the screen is there's a raven, there's a pig being slaughtered, there's details, there's it, it's so much to see that your eye can't even take it all in. And and it's like Blade Runner, right? They have two side streets. They made it into an entire universe.
2: Yeah, and then when when, when they find Valeria, then and join you and climbing the snake tower, and the, the giant snake that they find inside was just, was made full scale. It's, it's one of the few kind of fantasy things that we see in the film. You got the witch, you got the snakes, you go then when, later on when Doom turns into a snake. Yeah, but they made it full scale. As much as yeah, you can tell it's not real. It's it's still got that sense of realism to it that CGI is just not going to give you.
4: Yeah, it's all you need. It's that haptic yeah. glistening quality and, and just the, the architecture, the way it works, that underneath is a snake, and we see that everything everything makes sense. He takes that from Kurosawa, too. We establish the world, and when the action happens, we know where everything goes. We know it makes sense. It's an inherent logic that works, and then we believe all the fantasy, too, yeah. and uh, you know the way Conan's sweat drips and the snake eye opens in this great close-up. It's just full of of fantastic things and it's like Valeria again like you said she is often she's underrated I think as a female we always get Ripley and stuff but Valeria is my number one she is really it's like how what a presence to instantly Communicate that Conan, of course, finds his match in her. You know, he, they don't even have yeah. a rope to climb. <laughs> it's like this <laughs> is so great, and she is she does all the badass moves in this. You know, she 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 does the almost Indiana Jones Raiders uh, escape, and and she has all. She's just a perfect match for them, and outwits them at many stages. And and yeah, it's what a what a great heroine. Yeah, and
2: it's all her. It's always her. It's she. Well, she even like nearly chopped off one of her fingers later on in, in one, of, one of the fight scenes but yeah she sells it completely her physicality and you know, they, they then escape with some riches we've got that Conan Valeria love scene and then whilst drunk <laughs> they're captured and taken to King Osric the Usurper played by none other than Max von Sydow who was cast in place of the original choice of Sterling Hayden who'd gotten sick and, and couldn't play the role
4: That would have been amazing too, Sterling Hayden, like that stage of his life too. Oh my God. It would have been the reunion, the long goodbye reunion.
3: Like Max von Sydow is for me such an important actor because he's been in such... Yeah, he's crying. seminal, seminal, (laughs) Seminal films for me because like, you know, when I saw this as a child, I didn't know who Max von Sydow was. But, you know, I think one of the movies that really like energized... My love for, like, foreign cinema and, like, like cinema cinema was when I saw The Seventh Seal in mm-hmm. college. Like, that was for sure my first Bergman. And, you know, it's like, oh, he's also in fucking Flash Gordon. Like, so you, you think of him as this, and also, duh, The Exorcist, but you, you think of him as, this, like, this important... In, in quotes, like, Swedish. Yeah, but
4: he's and been Hannah in... Her lot, but... And her yeah. and sisters, and, and Jesus Christ, and he really yeah. does it all. And like you said, Ming, I mean, also produced by Dino De Laurentiis, they always act like, oh, the subject matter is somehow beneath him, and, you know, like, no, he, did, he he did Flash in 19... like, a year before this, you know, where it's even bigger and more gaudy. I mean, this is more Shakespearean than any any of this stuff. So he loved it. Like, you know, he, you could yeah. tell he loved it. Well,
0: I've chafed for years at this demigod.
4: Snakes
0: in my beautiful city. To the west, Nemedia Aquilonia. To the south, Karth Stygia. Snakes everywhere, these evil towers. You alone have stood up to their gods. And what are you? Thieves! Have you seen this? They call it the fangs of the serpent. And this one was thrust into a father's heart by his very son. And my own daughter has fallen under this doom's spell. Is there a dagger such as this in her hand for me? She follows him as a slave, seeking for the truth of her soul, as if I could not give it to her. As we speak, my daughter travels east to Thalcedon and his mountain of power. She is to be his. My daughter back. Take all you can carry. There's more. There's much more. Enough to become kings yourself. There comes a time, thief, when the jewels cease to sparkle. When the gold loses its luster when the throne room becomes a prison. And all that is left is a father's love for his
3: child. Yeah, that, because this is such a pivotal scene in the sort of philosophical development of the movie and for Conan as a character, because that bit about, like, the the jewels cease to sparkle, the throne becomes a prison. Like, what you're stealing doesn't mean anything in the end. And he's really foretelling... What's going to happen to these characters at the end? Just the way it's written it's like false doom. I, I've chafed of this demigod.
4: <laughs> yeah, and you wonderful. said it's a perfect match to his the the where we know as Robert E. Howard fans know where Conan goes, where where there's a great uh in the Phoenix on the Sword, there's all this when he's finally achieved that stage, and we see it, of course, in the in the in the end, uh, in in the great the best tease of all time, you know, and, and we see that mirror those images.
2: They never thought they'd get him to to take the role, but he jumped at the chance after his son convinced him to take it.
3: Yeah, I love hearing stories about that when when actors are convinced of to, to take a role by their grandchildren or their children. I think that's very charming. Well, they, you know, know, this is just true. going back
2: to like our Lord of the Rings episode where Viggo Mortensen his, his son Henry just pleaded with him to take it.
3: And I I, th- I think it was also Viggo's son Henry who convinced him not to be Wolverine.
2: <laughs> wow! <Yeah>. Wow! <laughs>
3: it's like no, the whoever wrote the script taste, does kid. not know Wolverine, so don't yeah. do it, Dad. So
2: that, <laughs> Osric he then he then tasks our trio with rescuing his daughter from the Falso Doom Now after they leave, and there was a scene film but it was cut showing Osric being brutally assassinated by his own men. I'm glad that they cut that out because I don't know which version of the film you've watched, guys, but the version I've got is it's the US DVD from the early 2000s and it's what's called the international cut. Now, i found over the years that this cut doesn't seem to be, and I'm not sure if it's the same way you you guys are, it's markedly different from the theatrical cut, but it seems to be the less widely available version, which is such a shame because, for me, the extended cut is so much more better, especially when you get into you know the latter part with the ending of the film and the additional scenes with King Osric's daughter.
3: Yeah, my version is the I think it's two hours and ten minutes and it is that cut with Osric's daughter as right. the end sort of guiding Conan to yeah. Thulsa Doom's heights. Yeah, I mean-
4: I have one criticism that it's just not enough of it you know so any cut that's longer i want it all i want i want every second of it i want the blueberry scene with his father later i want this is this is missing for many cuts as well yeah uh yeah it's it's um like you said it doesn't need that it's good they, they left it I, I wouldn't have minded it i think it looks pretty good in the little footage you see but you're right it does it takes away from the princess at the end that he brings her home it, yeah. it does it does it does cut that it kind of empties it a little bit the mission
2: i i love valeria's speech pleading to conan for them to go off to forget his mission of revenge
4: yeah, I've never had so much as this. This is beautiful, and the music again, Basil Polidor, is the love theme between Valeria and Conan, how they come together again, no words, and just the way she asserts herself, she's above him when they when they kind of embrace, and you see she's his equal. It's not just you know how how that's communicated in the briefest of times. It's all clear that they are, they have found each other. They cannot be. Uh, separated it all means more later that that she is the one and after she dies there can never be another by his side yeah. it's all very clear from from just the music and 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 the way these gestures play out and it's fantastic like the the, the theme that's one of the most underplayed themes obviously on the soundtrack because we go for the big stuff but all the strings it's
3: it's it's beautiful and when when she says i've never had so much as this like it's obviously not just about money like these are people who have never known love before and here they've they've in their thievery they've found their soulmates it's like it's a this beautiful little moment
4: yeah, and also how they get captured is great because you'd think okay now they're invincible and they could do anything but the way they celebrate and you know it all becomes too much they become complacent and they just get trapped because they, they become careless because they, they you know and it's the way he just gives her his riches you know he just he gives her the the treasure and it's just very few subtle things that are so great yeah and after Success we get the,
3: contest one's medal as surely is the greatest yes. adversary
4: yeah and it's the greatest gift of all time after long work day when he just falls into the, <laughs> the, the, the <laughs> grub. The gruel, yeah. The
0: yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>, gruel, yeah. <laughs> you
4: know,
2: she pleads with him, but, you know, he, he just can't let it go. And and then she wakes the next day to find him gone. And then he goes on his, his kind of quest across the steps, you know, t- to find false Doom. But he, he finds Doom's children first, which are basically, they're basically hippies. Now, was that an Oliver Stone idea?
3: More uh, Melius Yeah, I'm guessing Melius yes. Yeah, I guess yeah, I kind of like roll my eyes at any hippie bashing because they're, they're like the easiest targets in the world. Like yuppies hate hippies. Metalheads hate hippies, punks hate hippies, John Millie's hates hippies, and now Conan hates hippies. But I think for for cult followers, I think it it works in in this film. But yeah. but I
4: love it. At the time, you have to remember this is you know late seventies, early eighties, so it's not been this well treaded yet. And Millyea sure, does yeah, have yes, this yes. legitimate position that he was this guy all along. He was this guy, you know, when bikers, Californian surfer bikers, played with swastikas. Gang culture had swastikas. Black gangs in New Yorks were wearing swastikas uh, out of just a a pure sense of like, you know, a provocation. And so Mm. when, and This is familiar, truly. When you know the USC graduate, you know 60s uh, college campus atmosphere, and he goes against that. You know he has the loaded weapon, and so this rings much more true than any other sort of Tarantino bullshit. You know, mm, and so for if, sure, I, yes. <laughs> when he, it's almost *Life of Brian* too. When when he comes to Mount Doom, and we, it's a comic relief part. Of course, we get a little gay g- character, but it's like Arnold's one-liners. Like this is the this is all you'll ever need. You know, it's like it's it's so great a little comedy moments of among all these you know sheep that follow conan right away sticks out so terrible when he when he gets the robes of the high priest finally and he just like confidently strolls along and everybody notices him right like because he has too much swagger there's no emptiness you know everybody susses him out right away and it's it's it this is not a mistake it's in you could tell they had fun on set of being Arnolds with the little flowers you know it's just such a beautiful image
2: Anyways, so it's at that point then when you get to the Mountain of Power that we get our first look at King Osric's daughter, played by Valerie Quinessen. As much as Sandal Bergman is just, you know, I just completely fell for her in this film. I think over the years, and what makes it more tragic is the fact that Quinessen died only seven years later. She was 31 years old when she died in a car accident. But there's, there's something about her in this film, and, and again, like James Earl Jones, has almost got this kind of snake-like look to him. And as much as we're supposed to believe that he is like this ancient race and he can obviously turn himself into a snake, the, the casting of and she almost looks like she could be his daughter. She, she's converted,
4: a, yeah. She's, she's already a converted to, to on the way to a snake. Like you said, she has the... the, the, the off Zetas, women often have this 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 green hue to their skin this very pale translucent setting and she's obviously not a pure frazetta girl because they're much more buxom yeah. and everything but she like you said there's something in in the rich girl obviously that falls for these hollywood kids fall for these cults uh over over time and she she she's just completely involved in this and is she part of this transformation that also does can do later. Is she part there yet? Thin lips. She's not super sexy. She's just yeah. – she has this ethereal temptress, right? She's on the way to something. And like you said later, when, when she turns, when we get her turn, that's absolutely essential. I love that, that she leads him to the final uh, It's just, I think
2: now more than ever, I've picked up on the differences between this extended cut and the theatrical cut. And I don't think as far as, in terms of actual running time, there's that much of a difference. But I, I don't ever want to go back to that theatrical version where she doesn't play as big a part because I think it's really right. important. And we'll come to the, obviously, you know, we'll discuss it more when, when we come to the end. But yeah, her character...
4: Yeah, also devalues Subutai, you know, like that he um, d- deflects the arrow and stuff, you know. Yeah, that, that yeah, yeah. Has to come full circle for that to make sense. And even the way she lays her, you know, we can talk about it at the end. The, the, she She's ready to accept her new master and the way Conan just sidesteps that and makes it whole. Uh, it's just two gestures and it's all there.
3: Perfect. Yeah, he takes her hand and leads her away. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a great one. So then you gets to the mountain of power and as you
2: say, because he he, he he's, he's lacking in emptiness he gets rumbled <laughs>
4: Arnold is so full He's <laughs> so full of everything
0: You killed my mother You killed my father You killed my people You <laughs> took my father's sword
1: <laughs> It must have been when I was younger There was a time, boy when I searched for steel and steel meant more than even than gold or jewels. The riddle of steel. Yes. You know what it is, don't you, boy? Shall I tell you? It's the least I can do. Steel isn't strong, boy. Flesh is stronger. Look around you. There, on the rocks, that beautiful girl. Come to me, my child. That is strength, boy. That is power. The strength and power of flesh. What is steel compared to the hand? It wields it. Look at the strength of your body, the desire in your heart. I gave you this. Such a waste. Contemplate this on the tree of woe. Crucify him.
2: They they capture him, and he's beaten for who knows how long, and then... Fulcidum arrives and he says, I wish to
4: speak to you now. <laughs> right. I love, and this is a conscious scene. pilot in Christ. You couldn't yeah. be more on the nose, but it's so great because the, Conan, again, as we all love these 80s heroes, they're fallible. They're not Terminators. They're, they're like, you know, they, they are. He can be beaten. Conan can be beaten and, and uh, mashed to bits. And he barely survives this one. And the lesson, of course, then that Tulsa Doom turns is the, that he used to be after steel, but no, he found something more powerful.
2: Yeah, And it's just his, de- his demonstration of power, isn't it? About the fact that he once sought you know, the, the, the power of steel. Bearing in mind, this guy, he's supposed to be like a thousand years old or thousands of years old. How long It's very much later in life that he's finally solved the riddle of steel? Because... Surely this can only be about 15, 20 years after, you know, Conan as a young child was caught when clearly Falsadum was still searching for steel.
3: The riddle of steel is that steel isn't strong. Flesh, Flesh is, is strong, boy. What is steel compared to the hand that wields it?
4: Yes. <laughs> so and beautiful. and I mean James Earl Jones there. Did he really, the way he's, again, change of costume, slightly different setting, The the that marble set—it's not much. It's all the details are right. The way Arnold lies there, in in his absolutely blood splattered, and it's it's just these things that this little parable that becomes absolutely epic, even though it's very a very contained small set. It doesn't have a castle behind it. There's nothing. It's just a courtyard that is so. But it has all the marks we we recognize the Bible circle the resurrection death and resurrection and Milius said we're turning Christ on his head because of co- of course Christ would go well, God why have you forsaken me or father why have you forsaken me and, and Conan of course doesn't do that he 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 challenges crumb you know he challenged he will fight his own way back from death you know bites the the vulture on the neck and this is the tree of woe, really like you call the
2: whoa, whoa yeah. Don't, let's, let, 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 let let's just let's, let's, yeah. let's linger here because this I don't know. This whole sequence might be my favorite part of the film. Because you, you've got this, there's so much golden stuff in that in that, um, in that speech he gives. And it's the bit where he says about when he, he killed the snake back of the snake tower. And he's Thorgrim was beside himself with grief. And you've got a really pathetic look that Sven Oli and gives, like kind of looking, looking all sullen.
4: <laughs> he does it twice when he cracks the pillar, the same look. Yeah, so... yeah,
2: yeah. And then, you know, and, and the way he finishes it with. Uh, contemplate this on the tree of woe crucify him and it's just the, the way that it's just the delivery it's just it's just perfect and and
4: that blew me away as a kid when we see the tree i couldn't believe the movie would go there this yeah. is very rare that the movie goes to these extents of what we knew from animation anime manga that we could really go another step up you know like this is for me the ultimate conan imagery and it's just it's just the
2: This is like the spirit of, like, Robert E. Howard's Conan distilled into one scene because, and and again, right, oh, God, I've got to to talk about the music because this is one of my favourite scenes and easily one of my favourite pieces of score in any film, the the whole tree of woe scene. How does a piece of music so perfectly capture the baking heat of the sun?
3: Yeah, it's Basil Paul Doris. he's, He's got it, like... There's you know, as comes to no surprise to anybody who's ever talked to me, but I'm just a huge metalhead. And there's so many metal bands that have taken cues from this movie, both from the score in the way they you know, they have the their keyboard sounding to they have song titles going from Suffer No Guilt to Tree of Woe to Thulsa Doom to Wheel of Pain. And you can tell it's it's like descended from these sounds and from this imagery. And so as I get older as I learn more about metal and, and its origins and see how it developed, like the score becomes fuller and more realized for me. So it just become becomes richer and richer as I watch it again and again.
4: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and, And the kind of the people, the audience that embraced Conan first was a gang biker culture that wasn't exactly metal, but it came from hard rock and rock and gang culture, even of the inner cities. And these are the movies that we, why we get Rexor and why we get the Oakland Raiders, because they embody the myth of the outlaw of the, of the, again, anti-civilized wherever everybody else is they're wearing the swastikas and walking around in 1970s america and looking at you and saying okay you got something to say and so these challenges and when when rafaela talks about who was the audience for the first premiere of conan was all leather biker gangs that had the frazetta paintings on the on the cars and on the on the vans the airbrush these people were always there They, they they didn't need to be converted yeah
2: And there he is being crucified and scorched in in the heat of the sun. You know, vultures eating him. And He still fights, you know, biting the bird's neck. It's it's just, it's Conan, isn't it? Yeah, and I don't know how
3: true it is, but according to Milius and Arnold, that that was an actual dead vulture (laughs) <laughs> they were manipulated that he had to like wash his mouth out with alcohol yeah
4: yeah uh, the feathers look true. real absolutely yeah, real sure. like that, that corpse but wh- wh- yeah why couldn't you find anything else to bite in like give him a collar or something you know but <laughs> this is sort of there. there by the way yeah of course the best commentary of all time is is the, the Conan commentary with Milius and Arnold I mean there's nothing better this is almost as good as the movie of them reming and and, 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 and they're just like almost stoned with each other's cigar smoke and he's like and Arnold goes and it's like, is the boy wearing lipstick? What's wrong with this kid? Yeah. You know, it's, like, it's, it's amazing. It's just full of these stories, and, and they get embellished obviously with these two big myth makers, these, these bigger than life guys. So, yeah, I couldn't, I, at the same time, same like you, John, I always go, hey, couldn't there have been an easy solution on set to not have to bite into a dead Spanish vulture? It, it is a great
2: commentary, it's a classic and I've probably listened to him maybe now about two or three times but a lot of the reminiscences come from Melius. a lot of Arnie who's clearly stoned and Arnie, this is the bit where you this, nail me to a tree yeah,
4: like, okay, This is fantastic, I really like the music, you're like, you're like okay, wow, if you've not watched this yeah, you know, It's so charming though, the, the way the yeah, children, yeah. the Valkyrie obviously comes from that, she's a Valkyrie
2: And then after his crucifixion Conan's covered in painted-on symbols, which was directly referencing reference in Masaki Kobayashi's Kwaidan from 1964. And I, I love the animation. To, oh, amazing! Like Again, spirits, John, heavy like metal
4: language. This is like Drouillet, metalulon, heavy metal imagery. Number one, those ghosts, those those mm-hmm. animated ghosts.
3: It's like the that's that's all that DNA. And it's it's no. the only. Is this the only like optical effect in in the film? Like everything else is.
2: In- no, the witch. Um, oh, okay. Bit where she okay yeah, of, the thunderbolt, yeah.
3: kind of lightning. So. Yeah.
2: Now, I've never been sure whether he's supposed to be dead here or just near death. But Melia says in the audio commentary that Conan, you know, he says that he, he wasn't dead but near death. I right. guess. So this whole thing that he goes through with the, you know, the painting on of the symbols, I take it it's it's to prevent him from dying. Then, because obviously, if these demons come and, and and there's there's like a any part of his body that like in kwaidan that you know, he's not got these
4: symbols on, the, the demons will take him. Yeah, again, like this, they take that character's ears, yeah, don't they? hoichi the earless kwaidan masaki Kobayashi, but this is earlier. Also, this is a it's an old. It's in Chinese folklore, it's in Japanese folklore. Ugetsu has one of the first. Uh, Mitsugushi has that uh, that the covers cover the body is covered in runes, and they forget a part. And I, I read it like you did. He's near death, and these are preventive measures. But they're gonna take him away. They're on the way, and she barters Yeah, and she. She, Valeria gives herself up. She's like, okay, I'll, I'll pay that price if, if you return. She fights them, obviously, and yeah, it's amazing. It's just, it's, just yeah, it's her real
3: hero moment. Like, she gets to become, yeah. she saves Conan's life yeah, and she soul. Sacrifices she sacrifices herself, quiet, she doesn't she? Him. She <laughs> fights demons with her bare hands. It's one of the most, the, the badass spirits moments exact a heavy room.
2: toll, is what she says. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, he comes back, and you go, that's right, this is a little connection I, I've, I've only recently made. The scene where he's practicing with the sword. Near the shore, which was inspired by the scene of Brando learning to use a gun again in One Eyed Jacks.
4: This is an old side by side. I did after I listened to the commentary track that this is very much exactly that scene. I've done.
2: There's that other connection, isn't it? It's not just it's not just the relearning to use the weapon. No, it's, the it's a hand. visual thing. Yeah. But it's the coast. The fact that you in, in a fantasy film we, we we rarely ever see the coast, the sea. Much like in a western, they rarely do you ever see the coast and the sea. And you do it you're doing one I jack. Very true.
4: The matches are perfectly. It's I'll post it again in this episode side by side that we do. Um it's it's not only the coast and the California setting, which is unusual for of course a great Brando's only uh, film as a director, One Eye Jacks, yeah. but it's also very important film in the founding myth of the Italian Western. One jacks was part of the that that was really dear to the Italians because it had a lot of the Christ imagery. It had the, the 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 almost the Pontius Pilate, the whipping, and and Brando took all of that in, and that's why it's such an unusual Western that 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 spoke more to Europeans than it did to the American market. Very many images from that, yeah. And Milius acknowledges this wholeheartedly that this comes from this. It's, it's a fantastic sync up. Well, yeah, that would make sense because what was one I Jack's was at 61 and then, you know, a a lot of the um, time. And, of course, Brando in Apocalypse Now, and I'm sure he got something out of that from there, you know. And um, it it is another thing. I mean, there's the Paladors thing that I, I noticed as a kid, but this time I researched it, really. I mean, you put the soundtracks as they attack the mountain, as they come to rescue the princess, they... That That's the number. It's exactly matches Seven Samurai. I will play it again side by side yeah. on, on the Twitter in this episode link because it's they owe Fumio Hayazaka some money. This is crazy. It's it's the exact score. And, of course, Milius, on Milius' request, uh, do we notice this, this, this team. The, the, the attack theme is the exact bandit's lair, attack from Seven Samurai.
3: And, you know, from Milius' own biography, you know, he was so despondent after not being able to go to... Vietnam, because of his asthma, he found himself by going to see an, a a Kurosawa film festival, and that's when he wanted to decide to become a director. And right. I I don't think there's ever a moment in his filmography where he so directly references Kurosawa, and, and so I think that's what makes this movie and this moment special for Emilius himself.
2: Right. Well, yeah, they, you know, there's the, rest, the the reference, isn't it, with the Japanese sword master mm-hmm. as well? Yes. Because clearly, at some point during his training, he's taken east, isn't he? That's the great right. thing as
4: well that that we get like in the great Japanese in the M- 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 Moto Musashi myth. Otaku and the monk takes the priest takes this raw youth, this this kind of, and then trains him not only in the ways of the sword, but you know making love in the ways of the world and he becomes a great scholar and he locks him away in a tower and he trains him to become the bushido to empower this and when he finally releases him uh, he's 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 not there but he's ready set on his way so this is a very joseph campbell sort of you know around the world the founding myth in many countries and the, yeah this is this is a great uh, training sequence obviously at at the beach but also the the kind of attack and later the punji sticks the the whole setup of Seven samurai the, to the way we lay out the battle uh, uh, it comes directly from Kursawa. Yeah.
2: What do you think you know, when he's looking at his hand he's doing all of his um, epic sword moves and whatever, but at, at the bit when, when he looks at his hand, is he recounting what Falsadum has told him?
3: Yeah, I think so. I think he's realized the power of the hand that wields it because right. it's not just his martial prowess that, that wins the battle, it's all this the strategizing that he he does with Sabotai, the, the, the trap setting, the fortress building, and he's able to outwit his opponents as much as outfight them. And he is such a changed
4: man when he comes back from death. When Marco speaks to him again, when they set off, and, and they decide, "Right, Conan. This time we only rescue the princess. We kill him another time." And he just, just doesn't answer. He just sharpens the sword. And there's no laugh. There's no barbarian uh, like. It's it's that's just all business. And he's changed. And this is it's again subtle but very different. A different note again in his character.
2: And then from there, they, um, they ride through the dunes, don't they, the mountain of power, but it's those same dunes in, in Almeria in Spain, right. where they film pieces of Lawrence of
4: Arabia. Yeah, and then the war paint, to my knowledge, John, I don't know if you've seen it in any other thing, that's Emilius' touch, that he adds to the Conan myth with that. I, I find with, like, the Tree of Woe, that becomes an absolute Conan essential. That's Emilius' addition the war paint because he knew it would look great because you know he had all these military ideas but that's such an epic touch that we again we get a a, a costume change we get another you know a, a, a ramping up a dramatic like a, a, a stake in the ground here with the Kamina burana notes now the music is changing we see the cannibals the way they prepare that's an absolute essential thing for me as a kid that I, I love
2: well let's talk and let's talk about the score because from the start Melius wanted Basil Polidurus to do that score because Melius had thought of Conan as taking place 10,000 years before recorded human history and as the film didn't have an excess of dialogue Polidurus knew that the music had to carry a lot of that story and you know when it when it gets to the you know the, the kitchen as it's called and then you've got that track that's called on the soundtrack The Orgy. Now genuinely guys, true story. I actually wanted this as the music that played when my wife walked down the <laughs> genuinely genuinely did. I know
4: what was served during the, the
2: uh, during the, the dinner yeah the the soup with the green <laughs> soup with the hands in it oh, obviously she put a stop to that, <laughs> yeah, that that is how much I love that piece of music it's just magnificent
3: and it, it's such an incredibly it's the creepiest orgy that's ever been put to film even surpassing Eyes Wide Shut because it, it cannibalism is going on in the background it's implied that once this sort of writhing orgasmic excess has been expunged from these people, they're going to be butchered and fed to Thalsa Doom and the mm-hmm. snakes. Like, it's uncomfortable. And so we really celebrate when our painted barbarians come in and slaughter everybody. Yeah. Well, I
2: think, like this is the best example of where the score works. Because if you take the music away from that scene and just watch it, it does almost look a little bit comical and hokey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You put that piece of music in. And it just it just elevates it. But we
4: also need that for me it's a of course it's a lull, it's a repetitive counter melody that when the anvil of of crumb comes back that's we need that slower pace to lure us in to then have the highlight again it's like any good breakbeat you know you go you got a little bit out and then it kicks back in all the dancers come we know that's when conan is in full conan mode painted against that flesh-colored marble and the sword and he's hacking towards the camera he pushes that woman out of the way and it's this this is conan this is really robert e howard for Zeta arnold this is the merged image of all of it coming together with Basil Polidors and the only criticism I have again that sound mix, um, any version I have is just slightly too low when that final anvil of crumb when he <laughs> you know, tips over the split pea and hand soup, uh, it's slightly too low for my taste. It should really crash in, you know, the big drums and uh, I, I just love that so much. This is when it really all comes together. And I also love that instead of like, you know, a hokey dragon or some rubber monster, we get a real leopard in there reacting to the transformation. This is always a wild animal on film. It's so much more expressive and fascinating that the leopard in the corner sees Salsa Dune transform and we see through his reaction that there's something supernatural going on, something otherworldly. It's a, it's a, a great touch.
2: Yeah, and instead of you know, cutting back to a human character, the fact that you know that false do metamorphosis into the snake, which was done by pushing a snake-shaped head through an armature into a mask, a rubber mask they made of James Earl Jones. But it's cutting back to that, that, that leopard who, who's kind of just looking and, and, and growling at him. It just gives you that kind of supernatural quality, even more so than the fact that you're watching essentially a man turn into a snake.
4: Yeah, and I love that, I mean, we're we're all, I think, uh, Fist of the North Star fans, but I love that, that it goes to that extreme, like John, again, heavy metal violence and something that we do get that transformation that they don't shy away from it. They, they go it's not just a guy with magic and stuff like what's the ultimate form he could take oh a snake and and that's I love that it does go there it does so measure though that it never becomes hokey
2: hey, Tony you compl- right, You shouldn't have done that now because you've mentioned Fist of the North Star <laughs> all I want to do now is just quote that film and it's got nothing to do with what we're talking about
4: no but it but, does that, that that kind of over the topness that we love with Bronson and, 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 and that Japanese manga aesthetic again that, that goes and takes all these different you know influences and mash them together and it becomes like otherworldly, and you love that it goes there. You love that it doesn't just stay within a normal kind of Mad Max realm, it just no, no, told me,
2: there is a film <laughs> for a future episode, oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, and it'll basically just be two hours of me quoting <laughs> the American dub of that film.
4: I'm there for
2: the yeah, I will always say that always go with the original Japanese dub of any Japanese animated film with one or two exceptions. And one of those two is Fist of the North Star.
3: Uh, but w- real quick, back to the the, the battle. I told you, Tony,
2: you did a bad thing. You yeah, completely threw me sorry, off course. I, I just up. I just want to do I'm a complete about turn and and Fist of the North Star.
3: I, I love Thulsa Doom tr- transforming into a snake for a lot of reasons. You know, one, it it's not explained. We right. never see it come to fruition. It's just this weird thing that's happening. Mm-hmm. But it also, you know, like the score, it provides a counter melody to the action. So... We have this sort of like full on bravado masculine brute force of like a a big hammer slamming into a pillar and it's crashing down to the ground and blood and slaughter. And then we cut to this slow, creepy man manifesting as a snake somehow. And it just it's conducting the action in our minds and it's providing counter melody to everything that's going on
4: that's a great point what lesser movies again wouldn't have picked up on that this it needs like just like you need the orgy theme and then when anvil of Crumb, you save that you save that piece and you save you know you have you have the slow rhythm very very astute i love that yeah it's exactly there because again when you when you look at the the the, the it also knows to postpone that battle. They're not there yet. We need to save those guys. So, how do we get out of this and still have an epic moment that these two, these three people are going full speed at it with the swords? And it's not elegant, all this Japanese sword training is just complete brute. Blunt force the, the way they collide there—and it's just, yeah. And then you got Valeria sneaking around, and you got even—even even when Subutai cuts somebody down, we get a little uh, sting of a of a jaguar uh, a note because he's faster and he has sort of that quality. And they take care of each movement within the bigger symphony. They—they're not just. All fighting the same way either. And after then they make um, the escape,
2: Felsadoom kind of walks over and, and, and tells Thorgrim to, to to pick Rex or up again, you just get more classic of Doom dialogue.
1: In the Delta Philas they shall all drown in lakes of blood. Now they will know why they are afraid of the dark. Now they will learn why they fear the night. Infidel defilers!
4: Yeah, now drown in rivers of blood. <laughs> now they will know why they're afraid of the dark, why they will fear the night. It's so good, but that's Robert E. Howard. That's Robert E. Howard. That's why we, why this guy has lasted, because this is really special.
3: And you know, if I could just like dig into more why I love Thulsa Doom as a as a villain, like um, and why he, it's sort of an amalgamation of everything great about Robert E. Howard villains, is that you know Conan doesn't fear much. But, you know, like Tony was saying earlier, he is somebody who knows what he fears and what he fears is magic. And that is something that Robert E. Howard sort of put Conan against. Like Conan fears and hates people who hoard knowledge and power. People like Thulsa Doom. People who are, you know, against people manifesting their own free will. You know, there's no better example of that hoarding than Thulsa Doom and his cult.
2: Well, it's a bit not made clear, but when Falsa Doom kills his mother in the beginning, it, it, he's almost like he's got her transfixed, like she is under his spell. Because instead of fighting back, she just stands there. Mm. That's why he's able then to just cut her head off without
4: any resistance at all. Right. Obviously, part of the snake mythos again, the the, the hypnosis, yeah. and and that's why it's such a good. Um, uh, a villain in the movie. Not only the disease of the cult spreading and Thotha Doom as, a, as an enemy, but for the first movie as a setup, we, 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 you know, you want to you hit it all out of the park in the first go and Thothamon and in and, and, and the cult of Seth. That's in many Conan stories, but Milius brings it all together and he kind of picks and chooses the best parts of everything to bring out. And then James Earl Jones is just inspired because, you know, that's and not even Robert E. Howard could have imagined that bringing that together and he says something great too i don't know whether we mentioned this but obviously he's darth vader and and that theme will come in later at the very end but he says don't the big mistake many people do is to have fun with villains and you shouldn't have fun with them and go into the garrisons. you really have to take them very serious Uh, obviously obviously cast somebody very gentle and nice like him to be a villain and he Mm -hmm. goes to all his credit, he goes so into it. He, he makes, he sells every single bit of it and, and controlling that crowd and really having that pull to draw these people in. Yeah. And then, obviously, he fires that that snake
2: that turns into an arrow. He fires it into Valeria. She then dies. The, the, the spirits of... Of at that point, then exactly the heavy toe.
4: And again, such a great little bit of prop movie making to have that stiff arrow and then shoot it and cut and then dragging a real snake out of the side of her. It's so revolting the way, you know, yeah. the snake coils around uh, Conan's wrist and sort of she dies and, 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 and yeah, we go
2: from there. Yeah, and it's like, it's, it's how far he pulls that snake yes. out of it. Yes. That snake has gone right through her torso. It's this, and then, you know, you've got the, the scene where they, they put her on the funeral pyre make the wizard He's, he said that you know no no fire will burn up there but then come takes it anyway he takes the torch up and you know he he sets the funeral pyre alight and you've just got some more incredible polyduris incredible that then, part yeah, you know, you've got a line from from super and and the wizard says to him you know why you why do you cry and he says he is conan he is
4: Sumerian. he cannot cry so i cry for him that's and, amazing that's you know, it's, it's, that's so good all of that coming together in that extra line that no fire will burn up there why that extra line because that makes it bigger and it becomes yeah. directly reflects uh, Kirk Douglas's death in the Vikings, the, the hero's death, the funeral pyre, the the, the return of the Jedi, the, the Vader death. The, uh, it, there's so much in that classical language, obviously, but then with the Basil pushing it over the top, and it's just like Valeria, really her profile in that last shot, and Connor, the way he caresses her just gently, and it's yeah. it's big, big stuff. And it's, it's and the stuff that the critics oversee. That's the stuff that, that, that the yeah. other movies don't have. It's, it's a gentleness and that sells the rest. It's, it's not just a big brunt, br- brute force spectacle.
2: And it didn't help, then, when little bits like the following scene were cut out. I remember days like this when my father took me into the forest. And we ate wild
1: blueberries more than 20 years ago. I was just a boy of four or five. The leaves were so dark and green then. The grass smelled sweet with the spring wind.
0: Almost twenty years of pitiless combat. No rest, no sleep like other men. And yet the spring wind blows, Superdai. Have you ever felt such a wind?
1: They blow where I live, too. In the north of every man's heart. It's never too late to put I. No.
0: It would only lead me back here another day. In even worse company.
1: For us, there is no spring. Just the wind that smells fresh before the storm.
2: Now, as much as that like brief conversation between Conan and Subutai about the spring wind as they prepare the, the traps, you know that, that's only in the, the extended cut as far as I'm aware. But Milius calls it the, the, the Moby Dick scene where Conan questions what might have been if he hadn't spent 20 years on this path of vengeance. And it's, it, it, it's such a brief scene that I think you know cutting out that film did it really benefit the film just to remove that was it, was it extraneous or did it add just a little bit more Credence to the fact that Conan isn't just this sword swinging barbarian. There's so much more to him than the way he thinks. Oh, it's beautiful acting
4: too. (laughs) It's it's really good because he's so his smile is so charming, and maybe they were afraid like oh you know this Austrian has cut as much of his dialogue out, but it's almost the most he ever talks in the whole movie, and it brings the father back.
3: Yeah, that self reflection is so essential to Conan. And I think any cutting of that is cutting the character and is playing into the fears that critics would criticize Conan for. And just, you know, the the spring winds, like for us, there is no spring winds, just the air that smells fresh before the storm. Like it's such beautiful poetic language, but it's also simple enough and immediate enough that we know what they're talking about. Like we feel the deep well of soulfulness and sadness that are in these men after their great and profound loss and the only thing they have left is to defend themselves you know when, when two stood against many if
2: you've got any question then it's the Schwarzenegger's ability to deliver great dialogue you then got his his prayer to Kron. Mm,
4: right it's also a Kurosawa lesson that before the battle there's a moment of calm it's not them just sharpening the punji sticks it's a, the most you're the most The biggest danger when it's the quietest and the fact about the blueberries and the father and picking that it's almost like Arnold talking uh, about his childhood in Austria. And now he's, you know, arrived to be on the brink of a new life. And that's why it matches. It really matches this person. Uh, who's acting, embodying the role, and that's why it rings true again. And not only the source material, the acting, but also in the movie. And it's yeah, it's it's a complete disservice to them to cut that out. It's it really gives a another breather before the because this is really a true de force. You know, we need this. It's a relentless symphony, and so we
3: need these quick breaks from the, from that. And I think it's cutting that stuff and, and the fear of Arnold's accent. I think that is this constant battle that, you know, big studios are pushing forward to to sort of create this very predictable, bland view of what stardom should be. And, you know, nobody could have ever predicted the superstardom of Arnold, but, you know, here we are. And I think it speaks to how effective, like, an identifiable, unique presence on screen can fascinate and transfix audiences. Like, don't be afraid of that accent. Don't that that weird face or that strange build like let those let the glory of the uniqueness of these actors sing
4: it works more often than it doesn't you know i i always find when they look for the next james bond they're like "Who, who famous can we cast and i'm like no not famous again. You know, start with Connery. Start yep. with the Panther from a working class background that, that hasn't, the world hasn't seen yet. He You will embody that role. And it's sort of like this here that uh, Jerry Lopez, like how perfect, like, right? Because this guy has already achieved a lot in his a career away from the movie so he's a, he. the way he carries himself it's there or a Bergman like I said dancer you know g- she's graceful in, in combat she can do that and this is a great like uh, a, a cast of, of this and in the right hands obviously stared with the right sensitivity. but that's uh, it's the magic that we talk about when we talk about this movie that there is really this this sensitivity in each scene how to handle each part just enough and, and 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 insert these things and there's no fat to be trimmed. That scene is there for a reason, it has to be shown and and has to be sought out. It's it's beautiful. The way also Conan rejoices in battle. Now he's again, like you said, he's away from the sorcery, he's away from the the the, the melancholy, the death, the, now he 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 can rejoice, he knows what's coming. That's what he's good at. He's he's back in it.
2: Yeah, and this this is just all just perfect build up then to that that battle at the end and, and you know the fact that it is, it's precluded with the, you know, his, his, his his prayer to Krom Crom,
0: I've never prayed to you before I have no tongue for it no one not even you will
2: remember if we were good men or bad why we fought or why we died no all that matters is that two
0: stood against many that's what's important. Barbar pleases you, Crom. So grant me one request. Grant me revenge. And if you do not listen, then the hell with you.
2: And then you've got the big... Big battle where Forgrim and, and Rexor and, and Falso Doom arrive. You've got Valerie Kornassen's character, Osric's daughter. She's you know, chained to the rock as bait. And then you, you've just got just the brutality of that final battle. And then the the bit with Valeria appearing you know in Valriam to help Conan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Force Ghost. You don't you don't need to question it by this point. You just accept it. Yep.
3: Yeah, this, this just happened. I uh, yeah. Th- this is one of the moments that hit me again for some reason, harder than in any previous moment. I wrote a letterbox review for Conan for my viewing at this time, and when Valeria comes back as a Valkyrie to save Conan's life is, a rom- is the most romantic moment in cinema history. Like, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it, <laughs> just, <laughs> Good one. it just filled me with such happiness to see them connect like across the gulfs of the afterlife and for her to come back like a shining beacon of warrior light to strike down this oath. For her yeah, little, literally, her John, like,
2: shine in. Get uh, Shine in, yeah. like, as if she'd stepped out of John Bowman's Excalibur.
4: Yeah, and it, it, before you could pause this, before we could, you know, like, slow-mo... My, my VHS was so terrible from the recording. There was only these production Polaroids you would glance sometimes and see her in the full armor. Because it's so brief. It sort of reflects off her and the way Rexor just gets blinded that we can almost see... Is she really there? This is the great thing. Is it really her ghost appearing to save him from the afterlife? Or is it a reflection of a natural thing that that in battle seems like it's great. It's a great it's just short enough to explain it to be something else. But like you said, John, it's like you love her so much in that moment. You're like, I can't believe she you know, it's it's a great little touch into the mystical again because the the rest of the battle is again so much force forget all the samurai learning is and he's just hacking them apart to break his father's sword you know it's just absolutely ground level strength breaking of of people it's it's nothing to do with refined swordsmanship yeah and, and you're chopping at the legs yeah. of horses and then and then the way
2: he just hacks Rex all to pieces and 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 before that, when Thorgrim gets, you know,
4: spiked Could on the yeah. just
2: yeah, he kind of walks up to me, He goes, uh, "What's wrong? Are You're
4: you okay?" <laughs> yeah, that led little like seeing death his last breath and then Conan just standing there and looking at him and taking the moment and it's like oh when you see what, what he has been seeing these demons in his mind since his childhood and it's just like yeah. take drinking in his death as he gets spiked on that thing it's just it's another barbarian essential that other movies would not take the time to, to, to savor
3: and I, I love that moment when he sees his father's broken sword and he holds it mm. and he contemplates it and you know, there's so much symbology right. I- imbued in, in swords throughout history, but and especially in this movie, you know, the breaking of the sword is is the breaking of his life from the past and the present. Like he his quest for vengeance now is set, and there's before his his vengeance and after his vengeance, and, and for him to be able to hold that sword in that moment, like his victory is not complete yet, but it's. One of the, it's a profound moment in Conan and his journey towards self-realization.
2: Yeah, it, it is profound. Right? It, it's Conan who's wielding the Atlantean sword that he's been using on his quest for revenge.
3: That is the sword
2: that breaks
4: his own father's sword. Yeah, and it releases him from the curse and it gives him it gives him the tool to complete the cycle because with he couldn't have killed him with the Atlantean sword, it has to be his no. father's sword. That was broken it has to be the broken the sword of his father's his decapitation. And the fact that it's broken is even more brutal. It's, it's, it's even better, You know, than a complete yeah. sword. It's even more barbaric. It's um it's amazing.
2: Now, as I said, you know, the, the, the ending that we're discussing here is the extended ending with... You, you've got that bit where Thulsa Doom, as a, as a sort of last gasp, he, he tries to kill Osric's daughter with the, with a snake arrow, but Subatai stops with the shield. At that point, she she's pissed off then. it's kind of broken the spell because it's as if then, you know, Doom trying to kill her with a snake arrow has kind of shown her that her sort of devotion to him is, is all for nothing. She then, you know, uses her knowledge of the Mountain of Power to take Conan near. And then you've got you know that scene where Conan, you know, having slayed a few of the guards, he, he interrupts Thulsa Doom during you know his his speech to his, his his followers, his revelers.
1: My child, you have come to me, my son. For who now is your father if it is not me? Who gave you the will to live? I am the wellspring from which you flow. When I am gone, you will have never been. What will your world be without me? My son. My son.
2: just as you say tony that uh, he uses the broken sword but b- before that you've got the bit where he says my child you have come to me my son and and then that whole uh, again perfect dialogue from from James Earl jones the vader echo and and the fact that conan is is almost contemplating what he's saying you know seeing that yeah you know without you what would i have been and again he's, he's slowly falling under his spell but then he kind of he's got that broken sword in his hand and it i think it to me it's the grasping of the sword that reminds him no i'm here to do to this and this is what i'm gonna do and then he hacks at his neck with a broken sword and then he turns around blood spurting and the way the brutal way in which he hacks the head off and the the sound effect is just so convincing
4: yeah and it's the perfect mirror again a side-by-side that did uh, uh, uh quite a while ago because obviously you get the milliest connection to apocalypse now as uh martin sheen steps out completing the killing of of colonel kurtz and you you reveal the camera pans in the exact same way revealing the steps and the candle lit followers below the the the, the spell is broken of the cult followers and he releases them through the murder of kurtz the cult leader. Uh, it's the exact Ten towards reveal the big shot at the end of Mount Doom, where we have that final Ron Cobb set, that amazing big thing. And it seems even bigger in the dark. And, And again, you know, Milius finds this great, elegant solution to Conan's resolution. It becomes this Dance of lights as the followers extinguish their their torches as it's just sort of and it overblends into this thing that's not a, a stupid clunky monologue as how he has it tells us what he did but we see it through the spell is broken he is released and they are released and it's that through only the steel and his will has he managed to do this it mirrors the nietzsche quote at the beginning and it just brings that full vision full circle and the way he contemplates again, the 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 roll down posture, sitting on the steps afterwards, it's just a hand and fist, and it's it's exactly Robert E. Howard.
3: Yeah, we go, we go from that glorious shot of Arnold's back, his enormous right. latissimus dorsi holding the head of Thulsa Doom, and then contrast that with him solemnly contemplating his victory and his vengeance finally alleviated like it's it's everything conan is in in two shots right
2: yeah and then you know the the ending which is extended in this you know cut we're referring to with more of the princesses she kneels before conan as he's, he's about to leave He he goes to walk past her but then he stops he takes her hand and they leave together and, and this is after that bit where he's he's thrown the torch kind of sets you know ron cobb's amazing creation of light and Polidorus' score here, if if the Tree of Woe is, is one of my favorite pieces of score because of how well it conveys what it's supposed to do, like the heat of the sun, this is my favorite part of the score in the entire film, the bit where it just swells to this incredible crescendo and then boom! we're done and we've got the encoder with the wizard's narration and we see King Conan
4: and what could have been. Yeah the image that haunted me as a child forever. I love that it was there. I wanted nothing. I think this is again uh, uh, taking in an, a, a knowledge of that epic language of the Hal Foster of the Tarzan of of, of, of that brotherhood that Fra- Frazetta knew that the, the people that recognize this as, as children are fascinated carry through their whole lives that millions and when it's finally put here very i mean it, you can count it on three fingers the times it's been employed in the cinema in this genre especially that when we see it and he and he really does it that conan with the beard and there's some production stills without the beard but it's just perfect because we see it we see what the, the breath in between when he becomes king and then it mirrors the, like like john said the osric the hollow halls of of that victory. It's just, if there's no Valeria, you know, and then it just becomes, it's just fantastic. I love that it's there and it's a resolution. It gives some kind of resolution to that ultimate disappointment that we didn't have more.
2: Because, you know, the intention on Milos' part always was that that first film would start a trilogy. The first one being about strength, second would be about responsibility and then the third film would be about tradition and loyalty. And this film, you know, it was released on May 14th, 1982. It was a hit and certainly a very important part in the period where Arnold Schwarzenegger's career hit a steady ascension throughout the, you know, the early to mid-80s. It was then followed up 2 years later by Richard Fleischer's Conan the Destroyer in 1984. Are oh, we agree, gents, that this isn't really the sequel that this oh. first one deserved. <laughs> oh my god! And is that the, is that the biggest understatement I've said? I I, on this I, podcast I so have far?
3: a I have a soft spot for Conan the Destroyer. I no, think, you have to think, leave. <laughs> <laughs> I think Grace Jones is a hell of a lot of fun. I I think it's great anytime Arnold Schwarzenegger picks up picks up a sword, but I've divorced it in my brain. From Conan the Barbarian. There isn't a sequel to Conan the Barbarian. There's just this other movie that is in the same realm as Beastmaster and Red Sonja and Hawk the Slayer over here, Conan the Destroyer, and there's also this other thing that I can't remember from 2011 mm. that's also very separate.
4: Oh, yeah, I never uh, heard of anything. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> it's almost like, I mean, Richard Fleischer, I love a Fantastic Voyage, Vikings, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I love Richard Fleischer. It's been, a, a, in a different way, part of my childhood, and it's not well, a bad the, the, choice. The, Vi-
2: on- the Vikings is one of my favorite right. films growing up, and, you know, directed by Fleischer and cinematography yeah. Jack by Cardiff. Jack Cardiff. Yeah, now, Jack Cardiff, he did the cinematography on Conan the Destroyer.
4: Yeah. And First Blood Part 2.
2: Yeah. But <laughs> the rest of the film.
4: now it's just just, it's just the pg obviously we we always blame et and the quick money and 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 you know and 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 dino's italian production methods of just yeah sell it out whatever we don't care really about it and um this is all really true and it's it's a shame that they were but on paper it could have worked it could have worked with any other material than robert e howard and conan it could have worked with cull maybe i could have made a fantasy movie that is fun with princesses and castles and adventure and why not and like you said grace jones she's fantastic again we just cast grace jones because she is who she is she's perfect as as another warrior you know perfect uh, but uh, the whole thing from production design no Milius, no ron cobb and what i hear from,
2: no sandal bergman no james l jones yeah, no and, max one and the
4: genius is in the detail as we know and unfortunately fleischer was at this age where you know especially with red Sonia afterwards and arnold was unfortunately under contract for 10 years or movies or forget he was was definitely under contract so even he was questioning and saying like why are we doing this if we're not doing it right and they were just chasing that pg rating uh and the non-violence and you cannot do this with conan the Conan no. needs that fire and brimstone; otherwise, you don't got nothing. And the, and the costumes fall apart, and it's fur underwear, and it doesn't have anything that we just raved about. It doesn't have now. If if like John, you can divorce yourself from it. It's it's you know. There's a, there's a worse way to spend an afternoon, but it hurts so much when you. When you then compare it to this movie, or is that's what we're left with? And then even more with Red Sonia, where it's just like oof, the abyss. Like <laughs> it's just yeah. like, I did not even like this as a kid, and I had a wide margin of uh, uh, things that I enjoyed. But this is, um, yeah, I think it was once you get shown the light. It, it was it was I compared everything to Conan, and rarely, unless it's Japanese cinema, I have I've been satiated finding that same level of attention of detail or, or grandeur uh, than in this movie and we have to be thankful that it exists and it is there but uh, unfortunately it can never be followed up now that we are in a in a in a, in a post in a digital filmmaking world and it, it will never give us this this haptic quality uh, and marvel that these movies carry and it's not really a sad thing because we have it in the end but yeah, yeah. it's um what could have been <laughs> that, 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 that that's that hurts a little bit
2: I just think it's a a case of when a different filmmaker picks up the reins of a sequel and doesn't understand entirely what made the original film great. We saw it with my favorite film, RoboCop. And in 1990, there were a number of problems which led to RoboCop 2 being the film which it was. They were, in a way, kind of trying to make it not in terms of the violence and the content, but they were almost looking to aim it towards children with certain things. It ended up being, arguably, a nastier film in, in in terms of the sort of gleeful level of violence that's on display in some scenes. But it just, you know, it threw away Basil Polidori's score from the original. It, it was hampered by the 88 writer's strike, which meant that they ended up shooting without a script. And ultimately... You know, Fleischer who has proven that you know he's a capable and competent director, much like Irving Kirschner. Right you know, Christ, he directed possibly the greatest sequel of all time in nineteen eighty with the Empire Strikes Back. But all of these things came together, but they would it, it was a different set of ingredients which gave us the original Conan film, and Conan the Destroyer, it, it's just not worthy, is it? It's just not no. a worthy sequel to the original.
4: Yeah, and uh, what I wanted to point out again is in terms of the genius of Milius as a writer that we, we touched upon it briefly, the spawn of these, the universes that got touched in the 80s coming out of the rebellious phase of the 60s in these USC, this core group. We also, of course, we get Jaws and we get Dirty Harry, we get Jeremiah Johnson that Milius has his fingers in and that's all this circulating crew of friends that help each other and punch up each other's projects and they kind of work together in this great little... Side that existed that gave us all this this um, childhood fantasy, and we get the great Robert Shaw, probably one of the greatest monologues in movie history. It's written directly. Uh, uh, it's written by um, John Milius, the quint. Um, USS Indianapolis, Indianapolis, which, yeah, and uh, Robert Shaw edited it himself, and 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 kind of spoke his words, and it's what a perfect, another little you know feather in the cap of 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 showing that these guys had something else that they came out of a in, in and in a way the studio system collapsed and these new guys. They came in with comic book ideas and it turned out to be. Uh, in, in this film climate we have now, we we can see that they often get blamed for commercializing the films. But the, Scorsese was in that crew too, and we got you know Walter Murch and we got you know um, Paul Schrader, and they are all hanging out together. And and this and 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 what a fertile, amazing little crew that was. And and you know making The Godfather and Apocalypse Now all came out of that. That love for cinema and knowing those tales and being able to translate this in, into a risking everything and translating this outside of a system into a new uh, mythology. That for us kids of the 80s, like this, this was our dreams. This was, you know, this was our uh, Edgar Rice Burrs and, and Jack London.
3: I mean, what a miracle that era of USC was, you know, it was a very small film program at the time. And so for, for a program that small to get that crew of people who were all so talented and all loved film so much. And they would go on to like ignite our imaginations. Like I sure as hell wouldn't be here if that crew yep. hadn't hadn't met. You know, at that time. And, you know, I'm so thankful that they did. I'm I'm so thankful that that the many dominoes had to fall for Milius to be at the right place in his career at the right time, for Arnold to be the right age, the right maturity to sort of finally take his career in the direction needed to go. I'm thankful that Dino De Laurentiis was in this like swirling miasma of early '80s like <laughs> madness that led to this and and Flash Gordon and Dune. The yeah, Conan, let's do it. Like it's right. yeah. it's kind of magic. Yeah, for sure.
2: And, you know, again, you know, we go back to that, you know, circle of friends, the directors from USC that, you know, we we, we talked about on on the Star Wars episode. It came up again on the recent Godfather episode. And, and, you know, so many great films, which are so important to us, have come from that particular set of filmmakers. Conan the Barbarian, it's on paper. It's got that air of B-movie to it. But there are things in it, for me, certainly, which elevate it far beyond that. It is quite sparse in terms of dialogue. But what dialogue is there So well written, and in particular, in in parts, it's almost poetic. Certainly, everything the false doom says. You've got one of, and I and John, you and me have discussed this privately recently before the recording of this episode. One of the all time great movie scores, Basil Poliduris. He literally knocks out of the park here. This is such such an epic and and at times beautiful. And like you say, Tony, when you've got the the funeral pyre scene, just rousing and moving score, this is just perfection.
4: Yeah, and Polydorus was also in that crew. He was a filmmaker. He directed movies before, you know. And, yeah. and Milius goes and trusts his old friends and he's like, I know you can do this. You can do it. Yeah. And he just gives. Distrust to his friends and it spawns each other. The the, the disappointment of you know the, this massive task of finally bringing Conrad's vision to the screen with Apocalypse Now and then not even getting a nod at the Oscars, being passed by, and then taking this time out for him to make a personal movie about his loss of his time as a surfer and seeing that crew pass by and that time of life changing and that being butchered again by the by the release of the studios and and then him just this journey of a personal filmmaker to coming to this source material and then and then picking up his friends and his his crew and 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 making everything work towards this uh, like you said on paper but what a disaster waiting to happen. I mean, this is, you can do any kitchen sink drama or, or or drama that between people. That's easier to do. Even comedy, that's such an impossible genre. But this has just, I mean, traps at every turn. This could have been the most hokey, horrific, like any of the, the, the pretenders, right? I mean, it, it just falls off a cliff, that genre. It's not even, there's no middle ground. It's just the best and straight up awful right away, you know. And uh, it is stands alone and unique and we cannot repeat it and it becomes more and more special over time and it hasn't lost a step. I, I feel a real love for it now. Like I, I never used to, this used to be entertaining for me, but I love Arnold, I love Milius and these guys are leaving us and, and they're gone. And it's not only a childhood and connected to experiences watching this with my father or, or my personal thing, but it's also I recognize the men they they, they were, that I wanted to be that language of how you shape yourself and how you carry yourself, obviously not to disagree but this has all everything that meant anything to me Uh, and, and to see it hold up where many movies don't, uh, that we had an experience with. This is, this is has not lost an inch in a step. This is still a masterpiece.
3: Yeah. Agreed. And I just, I just wanted to say, you know, it's, it's such a testament to Milius is not only his eye for talent, getting Ron Wood, um, getting uh, Yamazaki mm-hmm. to do the, the fight choreography and, and casting these non actors, but also it's so rare for a writer so good to know when to not write. Right. You know, he, he was good enough to write that speech in Jaws, but when he's writing or at least taking the elements of Oliver Stone's script and saying, We don't need this. We can just get by with, you know, 10 minutes with no dialogue and just have Basil Polidor's fill in the emotion, have the, the physicality tell the story. That's an incredibly rare thing for a writer to be able to, like, especially for somebody like Milius, who seems to have an enormous ego, but to be like, No, we don't need my voice right now. Let the visuals, tell the story and it's it's what it's part of what has made this movie stay with me for so intensely all my life
2: in in the sort of busy hectic thing of our lives sometimes I I can find the idea of prepping for an episode daunting especially when we've got several stacked. but this one much like Blade Runner and and before that you know our recent Star Wars episode prepping for it has just been an absolute pleasure and and in in a couple of weeks since I, I first you know started by just my, my rewatch of the film and, and god knows how many times now i've re-listened to basil polydorus's score in the, in the last couple of weeks it's just in a good way got under my skin again and it's just kind of reminded me how much i love this film how important this film is to me and just what a unique film it is you know in, in the sort of pantheon of arnold schwarzenegger classics you know i i would be hard pressed not to include this in any kind of top five films you know, from the nineteen eighties or Arnold Schwarzenegger films.
4: Oh, but for me, it's like a top ten of all time. I, I yeah. hold it up to anything—any Bergman, any Fellini, any even Kurosawa. It doesn't surpass a Kurosawa, but it can stand next to it proudly. Yeah, it absolutely holds up. And I've always maintained this. And this, is, like I said, this is something I pass on to my daughter. This is something where you would normally go shriek away from. I mean, look at all this blood and guts and machismo and something. But I find I, I just want to uh, pass on this love there's so much more in this than the 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 reviews saw at the time and even if you look at which i never do but of course for this uh, preparation. You kind of you glance at some horrific scores, or dumb meta scores that we live in now in this idiotic tracking world. Uh, you just like you just get mad all over again. You're like, I, guys, this is an 11 out of 10. This is not 66% anywhere. <laughs> this, is, this is just absolutely. And people go, oh yeah, you had the roadmap of Robert E. Howard and Frank Frazetta. Yeah, look at that mountain to climb. What a nightmare! I couldn't sleep a day in my life to step in those footsteps. It needed that swagger that somebody like only Amelius or Arnold Schwarzenegger could fill. Like, you, like yeah, I, I laugh at you, Krom, right? Like, that attitude needed to be in making of this thing. Otherwise, you fail. You fail.
2: Yeah, and, you know, like you, you, you say about the Kurosawa comparison you just scratch beneath the surface of this film or just or just watch it like with an open mind and you'll see that there's a lot more going on aside from just sword and sorcery you know and hacking and slashing and you know it's a meditation on life and death and responsibility and there's little things in it which you can pick out which you can see were taken from seven samurai which were you know you know hinted stuff that's mentioned in red beard and it's, it's just it's so much more than what it appears to be you know on the surface and I, i'm just glad guys that uh, you know the three of us have been able to get together to sort, sort of share our love for for, for this film
3: yeah thank yeah, you for been, the invite
4: yeah. sorry sorry My, uh, no, I off
3: again. <laughs> it's all right it's it's been an absolute pleasure and it's been you know this is one of the movies that i've been wanting to podcast about ever since i first podcast about anything so i really want to thank you for for having tony and i on and tony it's been great to finally get to have a conversation with with you finally yeah. awesome
2: So, gentlemen, where can people find you on social media if they would like to impart upon you their own interpretation of the Riddle of Steel? (laughs) I'm at
3: uh, Quasar Sniffer on Twitter and Instagram.
4: I'm on Studio T Stella. Anything else is an Italian restaurant. Uh, it needs that tea unfortunately it's all been taken and yeah i think what what it's it's to echo that all again to come from this crew of, of podcasters and of film lovers and 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 wrong real crew and then the 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 pink smoke crew and and the film 89 crew we all have uh, a similar thing and that we can come together and that you can host this is fantastic because this is obviously a prime cut of an episode that uh has um, been dealt with many times, but I hope we could add something, a new dimension that hopefully echoes everybody's sentiments, but also told a little bit of a personal uh, involvement in this, because in the end, it's a personal movie, too. It's a personal movie for these guys, and, and that's felt in there. It's not just you a fantasy epic. So we'll post... Yeah. I'm sure many side-by-sides are kind of illustrating that a little bit like we always do on Twitter. So it's always nice to have something to look at while you follow the the episodes or listen to it.
3: It's certainly very personal for me too.
4: Yeah, and,
2: and if people listen to this now have enjoyed it and think we've done the film justice, which I hope we have, please leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. That really would mean a great deal to us. We've had a, a couple of really great and, and humbling reviews left recently. And if you want to get a hold of me on Twitter or Facebook, I'm at Sky Movies, and you can find the rest of the Film 89 crew and our writings at film89.co.uk. If you want to email us, it's admin at film89.co.uk, and you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Film 89 UK. So there we go, guys. Another one struck off the bucket list. It's been an absolute pleasure. And until next time, stay safe. At this point, I usually say, stay classy. But instead we're gonna hand over to our friend the wizard. So did Conan return the wayward daughter of King Osric
0: to her home and having no further concern he and his companions sought adventure in the west. Many wars and feuds did Conan fight honor and fear were heaped upon his name. In time he became a king by his own hand this story shall also be told